Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 271 with my guest Sandra Doherty, also known as Sex Nerd Sandra. Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Start building your website today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code MENTAL at checkout to get 10% off. I'm Paul Gilmartin. Wasn't sure what my name was there for a second. Uh, this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's, uh, it's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Um, MetalPod is also the Twitter handle you can follow me at. And uh, if you go to the website, mentalpod.com, you can find all kinds of things. You can fill out surveys. Maybe we'll read your survey on the show. You can see how other people filled out surveys. Um, you can browse the forum. You can read blogs and guest blogs. You can financially support the show. You can buy a coffee mug or a t-shirt. Or you can stare at it mindlessly and uh, work your thumb into your butthole slowly. I do not advise ever working your thumb into your butthole quickly. That can have disastrous results and be off-putting to company. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Functionally Dysfunctional. And uh, about her ADD, she writes, trying to clean the house by starting every task at the same time and finishing none of them. About her anorexia, I'll never be thin enough, but I'll always be ugly. Oh, that is harsh. Uh, Hannah, no H, writes about her hypochondria. Like I have, quote, ghost tumors all the time. Like even when I'm feeling healthy, I'm waiting until I'm not and worrying about everything I put in and on my body. 
snapshot from her life. One time I was at the movies with my sister. This was when my anxiety and hypochondria was at its worst. I was waiting to become schizophrenic, convinced it would happen. When the lights went down in the theater, I got so afraid. I remember thinking, this is when it happens. I don't remember if I even enjoyed the movie. I remember the relief when we got out of the theater and it was still light outside. Brandon writes about his anxiety. I'm afraid I'm just my mother's abuse project. Nothing is real about me. And you know, and uh, there's a snapshot from Brandon's life that I'm, I'm not going to read, but he did an act of kindness for a friend, and then he, he writes, um, uh, I'm desperately computing answers, trying to know something about uh, the act of kindness. God, God damn it, I need to know, did I do something for the wrong reason? Please, please tell me that after all this time, I can do something nice for real and that there's a nice person inside me. And I, to which I wanted to say, if you if you did that nice thing um, and, and you didn't do it so that you could go tell other people about it, then yes, you did it for the right reasons. And um, I read your thing and, and it sounds to me like you did it for the right reason and you're just being super hard on yourself, said the pot to the kettle. Uh Ken writes about uh, a highlight from his life, or a snapshot from his life. He writes, um, I jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge in 1985. Would that be a highlight or a low light? I'm glad you survived, Ken. Uh, and by the way, we're going to have an episode um, coming up in the future with Kevin Briggs, who is, I believe that's his name, is that right? God, I can't believe I'm I'm spacing out on uh, on his last name, but he um, was a uh, an officer who patrolled the bridge and uh, talked many people out of jumping. And um, can't wait to hear that episode. This is uh, again from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and this is filled out by Unraveling Hot Mess, who writes about her ADD. Helps me find creative solutions for the problematic situations it helped me create for myself. About her anxiety. Toes forever curled. That's a t-shirt right there. About experiencing racial and cultural bias. She writes, I'm a practicing Muslim American, uh, Arab American single mother. Where do I begin? Um, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine how hard that's got to be on any given day. And then Teresa writes about her sex addiction. The only hole I haven't filled is the one in my heart. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job Mental illness is convincing myself I'm so alone. Why hypervigilance I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. I was able to get myself out of Scientology. Put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old. And you're just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house. And you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. You know, so I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help. I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay. I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then. That, that option just evaporated and I'm, I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. I'm here with sex nerd Sandra Doherty. 
She has a podcast on the Nerdist Network that is very popular, and I've been wanting to get you on for uh, for a while because uh, anybody that listens to this show knows that you can't eliminate sexuality from <laughs> mental illness, trauma. No, um, it's all a big bowl of spaghetti. And uh, and what what is your um, title? Are, are you a sexologist? Are you a? Are, are, is it just a hobby of yours that you're? Oh, that's, well, I've been a professional sex nerd for almost five years now. And, um, and, and it, what do you mean when you say a professional sex nerd? Well, I don't like sex educator is the title I've gone with for a long time, um, but. It, when your work spans different media and different formats and sex educator is sort of so formal mm, and I, I do coaching and I workshop speaking engagements. I'm, I'm writing a book currently. It's just like really professional sex nerd is the best term. I sexologist now there are people who are certified sexologists, but anyone technically could call themselves a sexologist. So unless I'm become certified, I don't, Really want to use that? I saw term? a guy at the airport with a T-shirt that said "sexologist" on it. Oh, really? I, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, oh, I wonder if he's certified. <laughs> no. I saw a guy at a, at a uh, at the airport once with a T-shirt on that said "amateur gynecologist." Oh, okay. And I was just like, uh. and you know what? If the kid was nine, if he was nineteen, I'd have been like, oh, that's kind of adorably dorky because he mm -hmm. thinks that's going to get him laid right but this guy was like 35 <laughs> and some other guy even older than him comes up to him and goes hey awesome shirt and i just thought those guys don't know that that's not going to help them get laid yeah I, I think it's it's for the bros i think it's just to make friends with other bros maybe it's not going to do much for me or my fellow vagina owners but you know whatever yeah but anyway when, it, when the 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 term um sexologist i i've heard it a couple of times and so i don't really know if it's if it's one of those things that's official or it's, it's like you the, the minister you know somebody that sends in for a ministry right. degree <laughs> through the internet no if someone is a certified sexologist through like one of the boards of sexology then you know it's an official thing oh, okay but then earlier sexologist when i was looking into the title was somebody who actually conducts specific research on sexuality um i don't know if your your survey that i was looking at is fantastic so i'm like i don't know maybe you'd be almost like a sexologist <laughs> but um but honestly this work is so in its infancy that it's hard it's there are few resources for formal education and certification around it so and and i think too because there's so the the really potent stuff, the really valuable information, mm -hmm. is not readily available because it people don't want to talk about it. People don't want to be judged, and it's therapists and close friends and other mm -hmm. people like that. But you know how do you how do you gather that information in an industrious way? By the way, I'm watching um, Masters of oh, Love. Oh, it's so good, so good. I but I'm a few episodes behind i won't i won't ruin anything Thank for you, you but it's so well done it is and it's funny because at first the first episode's so dry and but slowly it all unravels oh, the <laughs> acting the writing everything is so yes. good and they cover it in in such a i i'm, I'm almost speechless and i was really kind of shocked because showtime will have like a great premise for a show mm -hmm. And then just drop the ball with the execution. Like, I was so excited to watch Dexter, 
and after mm-hmm. one episode I was like this represents serial killers the way girls gone wild represents calypso music <laughs> it I was angry after it and so okay. so when they cover the Masters and Johnson thing which I don't know that much historically about but it just feels like Wow, this is really thoughtful, and it's maturely done, but still really, so entertaining. And it and they could so easily be gratuitous with the nudity, and they're yeah. not. Which but there's I still plenty of it. There's plenty of it, but it's not. It's not. It's not done in a way where it pulls you out. Like when there's gratuitous right. nudity, and trust me, I love his titties and bushes as, as much as anybody. <laughs> Game of Thrones. Yeah, um, but when it when it's gratuitous, it mm-hmm. pulls me out. I, I then I'm aware that oh, you know, yeah. I'm watching something. Where there's acting, right? It it's motivated by the story. Like it's always motivated by something yeah. within, but it's still very enjoyable when it happens. Yeah. <laughs> and there and there's such a great point of view that where it's not really strident about how awful views of sexuality and women's roles and and what was expected of men and mm-hmm. all that fucked upness yeah. of the the fifties that was so gloriously awful oh my god when he hits her in the second episode yeah just like i got so mad but it was so important to see violence because you never really see that and and to see the characters i don't know the whole yeah. thing yes good show i'm so glad it's there i hope everyone watches it etc awesome so um where would be a good place to start let's talk about your life and what got you interested in in doing this where where were you raised um all those questions, the, the, yeah. the biography. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah, we just met. We were getting to know each other. Oh, my God. This is the moment where, we're, you know. <laughs> it's so weird because we have all this equipment between us, and I'm just like, you're so far away. Um, I am was born and raised in Los Angeles, um, Santa Monica specifically, and uh, I'm still here having a great time. Um, but I'm an East Sider now. It's very different than West Side. Where do you live now? Silver Lake, uh, Silver Lake area. Yeah. yeah, it's like a whole other country than Santa Monica. But um, but yeah, I I don't know. I had I was looking through your survey and just kind of thinking which of, which one the Shame and Secrets. Yes, yeah. Shame and Secrets one, and just thinking about how I don't have a history of like strong child abuse or, or like, my it was fairly healthy in terms of. Of the basics, and my dad was great when it came to sex ed stuff. Just very like, this is a thing. Just letting you know, like it wasn't embarrassed. I think he had had a history of really conservative parents who would. There's a lot of sexual shame in his household, so he just wanted to be like, this is a thing. This is a thing, and and so I just grew up kind of going, oh, this is how babies are made. All right, you know, it didn't have to be. It was all age appropriate. Um, but where where was mom? A mom is a registered nurse, mm-hmm. and so she was uh, working a lot more. So my dad, my dad also just a natural teacher. I think okay. I got that from him. He just really liked to teach, so he was more the um, telling me about uh, ancient history and and mm-hmm. science things. So yeah, it was kind of a neat. It was a neat growing up with him as my teacher, but. Um, yeah, by 12, I'd spend so much time in bookstores. And this is the thing, like, if you talk to sex nerds, like, have you ever met anyone who considered themselves a sex geek or sex nerd? Mm, not not officially. Unofficially? I mean, I suppose I consider myself one because I've always been fascinated by the what drives us, what turns us on, mm-hmm. what, you know. Yeah, it's, 
Yeah, motivation's fascinating. Yeah, and itself. especially the, the 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 real outer edges, you know, pedophilia, mm-hmm. serial killers, mm-hmm. um, the, the the compulsive uh, aspects yeah. of of sexuality and how it's related to childhood trauma mm-hmm. uh, or um, healthy sexuality being you know related to being nurtured and heard and felt and and all mm-hmm. that stuff and just how it's so complicated. But it's to me, it's it's so I love something that doesn't have a finish line and I feel like mm-hmm. the information about that it's every person's story is just another little brick yeah. that that builds this kind of really cool wall of of uh I don't know I I got lost in my metaphor there It's so. okay I was enjoying it and I love that you said that there's no finish line because I'll probably be spending my time studying sex in some shape or form the rest of my life. And it's cool to think like I'll never, I'll never be done really. And that's okay. Those are the best, the best things. Yeah. It's like food. Who gets tired of studying and talking about and cooking food, you know, and sex is similar. Yeah. So, uh, you had a a healthy relationship with your, with your parents. Mm -hmm. Um, what were, what are your earliest memories of, um, sex and sexuality and your place in the world and how you felt about yourself and your body? Huh, man. That, oh, these are oh, probing questions. Okay, well, I was a pretty late start- starter. I'm, I'm slightly jealous of my friends who talk about how they figured out masturbation at five or like hump their teddy bear or whatever. Like I was pretty much hitting puberty before I was kind of like, maybe I should, huh. Like I had been studying sex in bookstores and and thinking about it as an intellectual thing. I hadn't applied it to my own body. And so I remember like the day where I'm kind of like, maybe I should look down there and figure out, I I really hadn't spent any time with my own genitals. Um, So earliest, like my earliest memory of really focusing in on my sexual pleasure uh, was the first time I tried to like just masturbate. And I already knew it was masturbation, but I remember being frustrated because even though it felt good, I didn't know how to do it. And when I was doing like, circular motions and and it just, the friction started to become uncomfortable, but it still felt good and I couldn't come. So I just remember a lot of intense sexual uh, tension and just I was just so pent up and I, I just didn't know how to come. Did you feel like you were a failure on a on a certain level because you knew that an orgasm was something that masturbation no led to did no. you know that there was i knew th- there i was knew a there goal was, of an orgasm i knew there was or- orgasm was possible like i knew that was a thing but i didn't know what it felt like um but i knew it felt really good and, and, and you know that kind of like the blue balls feeling where you're just like oh yeah. so it was more just trying to follow this feeling but not physically being able to do the thing that my feelings wanted me to do in order yes. to make it happen. I was so like, oh. Um, plus, I was in a bunk bed with a sleeping younger brother, like in the other bunk bed. So I'd be really quiet. Um, so I just went to bed sad. <laughs> I was like, Mur. but no, no, I didn't feel like a failure. No, that came later. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, did I did I cut you off? Was there something you wanted no, no, to no, add? No, 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 that was the first one. I was just going to ask, what were the other, you know, you said you were into bookstores and stuff like that. What were the other interests that you that you had other than, than sex as a kid and adolescent? 
Oh, man. I I didn't have a lot of hot... Well, that's not true. I guess I didn't... Hmm. I took a ton of dance classes um, from two and a half onward. So I was a big dancer. So I have a, I have a pretty strong connection to my body and movement. Mm-hmm. A lot of awareness there, which I think has really helped. Um, so lots of dance. I started to get into sports around my preteens. I was terrified my entire childhood of playing sports because I it looked like all the kids knew the rules and I didn't understand. So I was too afraid to play. Um, so that only happened in my teens, but that was the main thing is just pouring myself into that. Um, and a lot of angst and, and being alone and thinking, and I was a reader. So yeah. was there a fear of asking questions? Is that one of the things? Cause you know, my thought when you said the kids knew the rules, what kept you from saying, Hey, how does this, what's this, what's that rule? Why'd the whistle get blown there? I think it's like um, when I tell women that uh, belly dance classes would be a great way to get in touch with their body and movement and, and for sex and in general, just feeling good about their bodies. Um, I often get the, oh, I, I don't know how to do that. I can't do that. And I'm like, oh, I remember when I felt that way. And I remember soccer. I, soccer ended up being my favorite sport completely when I started playing. But it just you just think that they throw you on a field. <laughs> And then you have to do the thing with the ball. And it, I, it was chaos. I had no idea what was going on. So I think it's just you think it's like if I say anal sex to someone who's new, they immediately think like giant traffic cone in your butt, you know, like just the mm-hmm. biggest thing. And they're like, it's like, no, first, we're just going to touch the outside. It's really So it was just, uh, I think, a misconception of not. I mean, dance classes, I, kn- I knew you go in and you follow the teacher. It's real simple. Soccer. Fuck. Oh, can I say that? Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm allowed. No. Right. <clears throat> so, um, getting back to um, where where we left off, talking about uh, your your sexuality. So, you your first experience with trying to masturbate was uh, frustrating. Totes. <laughs> <laughs> you failed miserably. <laughs> It was so frustrating. You almost got kicked out of the bunk bed. Uh, what What's the next? Give me some seminal moments in your okay. in your childhood. Ooh, seminal moments. Oh, childhood. So because childhood, childhood me, or, or or adolescence. I don't know. One. Are we talking about me as a person or me as a like the sex? Part? No, no, no. We're talking. This is all about you as a as, as a person. A, as a person. Oh my god, this is so exciting! I get to be a whole person here, not just the sex person. That's pretty cool. Um. Oh my god, the earliest memories. I I remember being at Disneyland. That's like a three-year-old. Oh, here's something telling. I remember, because I started kindergarten early. I was four and a half, just from where I was born. And I remember that summer, there was this thing that adults kept saying to me that everything's going to change. Everything's going to change when you get into kindergarten. There's just this big change going to happen because then suddenly you're in school and it's an institution Mm -hmm. and, you know, your life happens. And I remember sitting in the passenger seat of my mom's car at a stoplight at Olympic and Bundy and looking up at a Marlboro uh, cigarette sign, like the cowboy on the horse, they mm-hmm. still have those, and just being like, it must have been like August, like right before school, I'm like, it's all gonna change. <laughs> it's all gonna change. Like I was just this, not a doom, but just sort of a foreboding of something to come. And it was The just, unknown. The unknown, which just is like, it was sober. It was real sober. <laughs> you know, just it wasn't like, ooh, childhood, I'm an innocent being, everything's sparkly. It was like, ugh. I remember having that feeling about first grade. Yeah. I don't remember that about kindergarten, but I remember that about first grade and just being like, oh my God. What? I, I'm in over my head. Yeah. And then, you know, a month in, you're like, oh yeah, I know that guy. I know that girl. <laughs> and it's okay. 
But yeah, that uh, that fear of the unknown is so intense sometimes. It really is. Now, now, now I'm digging deeper to preschool and remembering that I went to at least six different preschools because I kept being like uncomfortable with preschool. And like, I remember my parents leaving me at a babysitter and me like screaming and crying and like clinging. Like some, it would, I think I had like some sort of fear of being abandoned or something. Like I just didn't know that they would come back. It was just this, and so I went to so many preschools. It was, it was like a tour of Los Angeles. Um, I remember that. It's so illogical, but yet this time it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Hmm. And who was it who's, who's, um, who not being there terrified you more, your mom or your dad? Well, my mom was working a lot because she was around that time where she just became a nurse, a registered nurse. So, I mean, it was everybody, but my dad was the one that would pick me up. Um, Did he work as well? He did work. Uh, He changed jobs and did different things. He was a teacher for a while, um, different things. Um, Sorry, there's like hair on the microphone Hmm. and I'm like being attacked by it. I like getting real close to the mic. Don't judge me. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not. So, um, give me some some more uh, seminal moments from from childhood, childhood or adolescence or adulthood. Things that you th- that were especially painful, embarrassing, um, enlightening, transformative. Just oh god, I should have studied it more on myself. I mean, well. Hmm. I was, I mean, if we, I feel like the context of this show, I'm kind of like, I was, I had pretty low self, well, the language I would use now for it is that I had pretty low self-worth from a very young age. Um, I remember being 10 years old in like fifth grade and writing in my journal that, well, I remember finding a second grade journal that I needed to go on a diet I didn't have dietary, I didn't have uh, eating disorders, but I remember being aware that I was too fat. Like, just... Do you think that came from the dance, the dancing? and? I was definitely a little bit more rotund than the other girls, but it was also a lot of really skinny white girls, and I was sort of like the chubby Filipino kid, you know? <laughs> like, it was just like I was sort of the token Asian girl in class. So, um, but I wasn't really overweight. I was just a different shape than a lot of the girls, you know? Yeah. Um... And I think also just, there was just a lot of talk at that time about dieting and, and being thin. Um, so second, I remember... In second grade's a good age to get Oh, that, yeah, to definitely, definitely. Pound that, pound that in. Yeah. And I did get pretty chubby in third grade, but then my all my pictures, I, it's like I was a skinny kid. And then like third grade, yeah, I was really into, you know, popcorn or whatever. And then like it got that skinny again. Um, but I don't remember any major changes. But I remember fifth grade um, already feeling suicidal, like really not wanting to be present in the world and like wanting to be gone um so that was that was hard so i would say that there was a through like a dark i, I was a pretty dark philo- philosophical kid it Lots sounds of, like it i mean kids yeah. that seek books out and stuff it's like you're trying to make sense of yeah. your feelings and yeah i mean there's you know there's a passion there too for for things but yeah it's oftentimes it's like what's What's the matter? I and there's something comforting about information because you isn't there though? You feel like you're <laughs> moving forward in your quest for an answer to why there's that gray ball inside of you that makes your stomach tighten when you open your eyes in the morning. Right. It's so fun. I love that you say that about information is because I've also being a sex nerd type 
and that that phrase came much later than all the the digging but after all of the digging and the knowledge through my teens my 20s is i've gotten to a point especially being a professional teacher and sharing with other people like i've got to a point past all the knowledge and the information where i kind of go I mean, it's all important and it's all good to know, but now that I know it all and I'm slowly just forgetting it <laughs> until mm-hmm. I revisit it, it's more about being able to tune t- or tone everyone else down enough to be able to hear myself and hear what is important to me. So I've been spending a lot of time realizing past all the nerdery, that I just need to listen to myself. It's weird. What are the things that you don't listen to yourself about that, that you find yourself going, oh, you know, that's something that... That's an issue that I haven't given enough weight to. Um, well, one would be noticing the inner monologue, that it can be quite harsh at times. Um, I started therapy about a year and a half ago, uh, and it was the best. I mean, there were like a lot of hard things I went through, but now that things are really healthy, now we like go in and like explore my mind and be like, why do I do that? Why is this a thing? Like I had a whole therapy session just on a carbon pumpkin con- contest I was in where I had like, major shame around having a good pumpkin which was really odd and i'm like that's weird shame that you did a good pumpkin or you wouldn't do a good pumpkin in that i enjoyed the creative process of planning this like kind of really uh, funny face and it was just you know it was just a creative process and and i'm only getting in touch with my creativity as of late um and then i just set it out with like the 20 other pumpkins and then i kept getting you know friends of mine in the group were like you know, great pumpkin. Like, you know, the judge is really liking yours. And like every time the person would say something, I'd immediately, like I, at first I was glad, like, oh, okay. It resonates with other people. They like it too. Yay. And then I was just like, don't look at my pumpkin. Don't look at my pumpkin. Like, I just wanted to like, why do I want to place a napkin over my pumpkin? That is crazy person feelings. <laughs> like, so there was a whole session just on why I would feel bad about something that people liked. Uh, going back to your, to your childhood, you know, it's, was there a, a lack of validation? I mean, it sounds like your dad was in your life and he was good at, at, at guiding you and stuff, but was there like positive reinforcement and feeling, I, I don't know, was there a lack of something or do you think that's just like a genetic thing or a cultural thing? Oh, in terms thing? of the depression? The depression the and, and the feeling like you need to be validated by these by these these things, which I think you know, ninety nine percent of the population has, but it. it um, I think it's good to. Be I don't know that, that that thought just popped into my mind. Like, was there a? I want more validation from mom or dad. Was there a feeling of a lack of it? Oh, as, there was so much validation. Both my parents came from incredibly um, neglectful households, and so they poured a lot of love into the family. I was the oldest, um, so if anything, there was too much. Uh, yay. For me, it was like, okay. Did it feel false to you then? Sometimes. uh, But I mean, if you're going to have too much of something, might as well have that, you know. I'm not really complaining about it. Um, But I find so much of my adulthood is just, you know, just realigning my wheels slightly. It's just, you know, um, but no, I I had plenty of was uh, Was the, the validation, the verbal validation, was it in sync with the actions that were expressed? The, the the loving actions because I often find there's a dichotomy mm-hmm. between what parents say to their kids mm. and the way they act on behalf of their kids and oh how so um well I'll use my experience my my mom would lavish 
praise mm-hmm. on me, but it never sunk in because she would do these things w- that were really mean. And oh. so I've always gone dead when she begins to, to compliment me. And I know I can't be the only one that, that experiences that. And so I always was puzzled because I was like, well, my mom says she loves me and she must. But then I finally got into my body and realized I hate being around this person. I don't Mm. feel safe and I don't trust her. And I'm not trying to read that into your situation. Just because you asked for an example, that's where um, I, I wonder because I think our what really sinks into us is the actions that we mm-hmm. see, the things that take effort that the parent does. Because words are, while important, mm-hmm. are easy, but they can often be at odds with the actions. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the parent that tells their, their child that what they're feeling is wrong, that they shouldn't be crying, that, mm-hmm. um, that, that was never done to me, but that's one that I hear a lot mm-hmm. uh, from, from people that that really struggle is the, a message was given to them as yeah. kids that stop feeling what you're feeling. Right. That's not yeah, acceptable. I, I feel fortunate that that is not, it's not something that I experienced uh, a repression of my feelings. It was, I think for me having parents who, cause it's more all of this, the, the narrative that I'm telling you, it's so weird cause this is the adult version of me processing the child, so my perspective at the time was different, but I would get tons of positive reinforcement. Like after a ballet uh, performance, it'd be like, oh my God, you're so good at that. You should be like a professional ballerina or something. And I'd be like, oh, I'm really good at that. Apparently, oh, look at me. Um, but at some point, it became too much, I think. So, and it was. What was the feeling when, when it was too much? Well, I realize now that. They were both, especially my dad, complimenting and loving the children that they were and, and projecting that onto me, that th- their kids that were really uh, neglected and didn't have that flush of love. And as a child who did have plenty of love and was then on top of it getting a lot of extra attention, like I just, I didn't have a dearth of, I, I didn't have... A neglected time you know I wasn't the puppy at the pound who had had a really bad time and now you're gonna like make them better like I was fine <laughs> so so you felt a little bit like you were the the uh, uh, making up for what they didn't get well at the time it I mean the, it, the excess the excess just felt like they saw something that wasn't there like it wasn't connected to me so uh, in terms of growing up when I'm good at something, I mean, of course, I'm still figuring it out and whatnot. This is just a half-formed kind of thing. But when I'm good at something, like, for instance, I have a podcast that people really like, and it helps a lot of people. And I'm so glad I'm able to do this work. But then if someone talks to me about it, like, for a, like, and I've finally kind of numbed that, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is great. It was really healthy to do. But I would have negative feelings when people would tell me that they like my podcast because, like... Well, one, just the the pain of being the artist and you know how much better it could be. There is a certain like, oh, you like the thing, but it's not as good as it could be. That's difficult. But I just don't know how to take compliments. Um, but I think it's a, I think it's a lot more complex than I think it is. But um, it usually is. Right. We, we like to think that we got it nailed. Let, let's do this podcast uh, again. 
in like five years because I think I'll figure it all out. By then. <laughs> all right. Uh, what are the feelings that come up? The thoughts and feelings when somebody's complimenting you. What does it feel like in your body? What are the thoughts going through your head? I mean, you just shared um, a, a couple, but. Well, I think there's a, I mean, I, I sense a positive recognition. Like, you know, I, my understanding is when you get a compliment, you feel good. I mean, of course, if you don't like something about yourself and someone's like, I like your nose and you're like, I hate my nose and like, ah, don't say that about, my, you know, um, which is a whole interesting thing. But I think deeper than that, I'll be happy that someone likes the thing, but then I'll feel shame that I felt happy that they liked the thing. So that I think there's also really? feeling bad about feeling good. Yeah. Uh, I went to Catholic school. Oh, there we in, go. In my elementary school years. You know, I was questioning the existence of God in like kindergarten. I was like, really? I mean, but really, he's watching me while I shower. That seems weird to me. <laughs> that seems a little, I mean, the fact that Jesus and God are like hanging out, eating snacks, watching me shower. I just think they have better things to do. <laughs> like, I'm really in kindergarten. I was asking my friends, like, you, you're in on this? Like, is this a thing? Um, but I I mean, not that I can necessarily trace it back to specific things, but I think that definitely there is a do not be prideful, do not be boastful. And it it's, you know, because I don't, I, I find arrogance to be one of the least attractive traits like, in the, the human family of things. Um, so when I notice it in myself, just like a little... Like feeling good about myself can also be bad. You, you equate that with arrogance. If I yes. if I soak that in and say yes, I am a good host, then, right. then that makes you arrogant, right? And that's something that I've become aware of more recently. And so I've worked on self worth and being kinder to myself. So how did you do that? Um, well, I reached out for therapy about a year and a half ago uh, because I was incredibly depressed. It was uh, a birth control reaction. It was a long time of not realizing the birth control was doing that to me, um, which just really sucked. And soon as I stopped it, I felt much better. But Was the chastity belt too tight? <laughs> uh, it was too loose, actually. I felt really bad about all the sex. <laughs> um, but I knew that for all the like all the stuff I want to do in my life and all the things that I like and just the person that I am, the passions and blah. I didn't have very good skills at dealing with myself. So I went to a therapist and was like, I need better skills because I do not want to kill myself. So how can we, so I've been learning skills and one was just treat myself kinder and that's paying attention to monologues in my head. I see. So when you find yourself beating yourself up, what do you, what do you say to yourself to counter that you're not good enough or whatever? What, well, what what are the greatest hits of uh, <laughs> of the negative self talk? Sex and Sandra's greatest hits of feeling bad about herself. Um, like let's say, like just when I started the podcast, I got a a ton of emails, and it was just this. It was like a snowstorm of, and I didn't know. I just didn't have the skill sets or the discipline or the time or the energy to reply to all of them. And it was just sort of this crumbling, like, I can't do, and I just felt awful because all these people are so wonderful writing me, you know, these questions and things. And, you know, the internal, like, something I would say would be like, get it together, you know, like, just... Because I imagine someone else... To, to yourself. Yeah, like, get, get it, it together. together. Like, so I was going to say, that's an awful thing to send to somebody's question. No, 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 no. <laughs> to myself, to myself, get it Which together. Which is a great example of 
how bad we can be to ourselves. Right. That you would never say that to somebody else. Right. Get it together. Now, I imagine that if I were to tell someone that I was freaking out about all these emails, so just or in just the time passing where I'm not writing back people and. I mean, I kind of figured it out later. Uh, bounce back email. Sorry, I'm stressed out. <laughs> but I know that a friend of mine would probably say, like, it's cool. Like, of course. Like, it's fine. But the fact that somebody else would give me that slack, I'm like, no, get it together. And so, like, I would be the own disciplinarian of myself. But the fact that I wasn't allowing that softness. You know, like, sure, discipline's important. But... You also, it's good cop and bad cop. You can't just be bad cop. In that gray area, I mean, that's the struggle in life for for me is. Yeah? Yeah, it's five is hard to do, zero or ten. You know what the answer is for Mm -hmm. zero or ten. I'm a piece of shit or I'm the (laughs) king, but, you know, how do I find my place in the world, Mm -hmm. you know, where I'm one of many, special Mm -hmm. in a certain way, but not that big of a deal. That's a a lot of subtlety to, to juggle. You're either the best or the worst. Yeah, because that's easy to to come to that conclusion. Huh. It's easy and it's final. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a finality to that. There are, okay, now I can move on, but the rumination of the gray area, I think, is, is so... I think the gray area leads to rumination because you want an answer, but some things there aren't an answer for. And it's hard to just let that go. And maybe that's perfectionism. I, I don't know what's... You strike me as a perfectionist. Oh, do I? I so am. You're so yeah. right. Yeah. Um, and I've been trying to stop that. Actually, I have embarked on NaNoWriMo this month, National Novel Writing Month. Oh, yeah? Where you um, you pledge at the beginning of the month to write 50,000 words by the end of the month. So the sheer amount kind of pushes you through that perfectionist. Because first draft's going to be crap no matter what. Um, but I want it to be perfect and amazing. So uh, I'm... Over, I'm about 5,000 words in. I'm a little behind, but one-tenth there. Yeah. And have any positive feelings come up from doing it so far? No. <laughs> <laughs> you got 45,000 more for that to happen. No, I think the first two days it became, oh, my God, people are going to read this. Like, this is incredibly personal and flawed and damaged. You know, it's just like all the... That's awesome. What have, what have you written in that 5,000 words that's... It's, flawed and damaged and it's um revealing well i mean you're talking about sex it's um it's difficult because to define what what is sex you know like uh what is healthy sex what what is good sex what is a great blowjob you know what are these things and it's not a finite fixed definition it's so to the person so instead of instead of um so I found myself in all these weird, I'd work myself into these corners where I had to define things and which is not helpful, really. Um, I prefer frameworks to, to view your own experience through and your own needs. Um, so I just kept finding these corners of like, oh, this is not where I want to be. And I'm not writing a novel. I'm writing nonfiction. Uh, it's slightly memoir, but it's mainly if I get hit by a bus, I would like to have the things that I know and the wisdoms and the conclusions together somewhere outside my brain in case to leave your mark on the world or God, it's not even a, a mark it's just it seems sad that it wouldn't be anywhere beside my own brain because it comes out when i teach a two-hour class on blowjobs i try to push so and it's the most popular class that's why i bring it up because it's just it's people are obsessed with blowjobs um as, as a skill as like a like i want to be good at this thing which is great cuddling is too um 
but that strikes I, me as a long session to teach a blowjob. It seems like fifteen minutes would you know work the shaft, pay attention to the uh, to the head, and if you got time, work the ball bag. Yeah, but those are such broad statements to work the ball bag. <laughs> Just mentioning how to play with the testicles and scrotum alone, you could talk for an hour on that. Like, there are so many different methods. There, uh, One is expanding people's awareness, and that's also just understanding what is essentially possible, you know, where are the awesome erogenous areas. And there's plenty of places on people's bodies, men and women, everybody, that people don't think about and they just sort of breeze past to get to the things that they saw in porn a lot and um what's the object that you use to demonstrate dildos yeah, yeah. i've got a whole lot of dildos <laughs> it's just because i mean it's just like this is a penis um i have a giant vulva puppet for for female bodies it's it's fun because the landmarks are so big um i do have a giant dildo but dild silicone dildos are incredibly heavy so to have a giant one would just be like it's too big it's too heavy hurt my shoulder um what was i saying that uh with this oh i don't even remember just oh after a two-hour blowjob workshop i realized that because that's the main way that because podcast i interview people but if i want to teach a thing in a workshop after two hours i still have so much left to say and so really i just need to write a book because i need to stop feeling like i have to shove everything into that's a, awesome a workshop that you have that much to say i mean that's clearly um a sign of the passion uh that you have for for talking about that because um you know in my mind how could you not say everything you have to say about blowjobs in 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 two hours but i suppose because it's that bowl of spaghetti where everything is connected uh you can't ignore talking about foreplay Mm -hmm. and the way that you talk to each other before you get into the bedroom and how important that is that mm-hmm. sex isn't this separate thing that you can separate from have you taken the trash out have mm-hmm. you listened to me when i come home from work mm-hmm. that you know it's all really important communication is a huge part and and i think also especially because there's this assumption that men are so easy to please and sure i mean in a way you could just you know, go up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. Whoa! Like that could be, but there are so many subtleties and I myself have experienced them with partners and talked to men and talked to uh, people who sleep with men uh, after taking my class and been like, oh, I tried this. I had no idea. Or like, I didn't, oh yeah, they do do that when they masturbate. Like there are all these little subtleties that even men, like women, they're just perceived to be so complicated. Right. And so there's a certain amount of permission to try and figure them out. And I think because their excitement isn't as visual, visually, you don't get that feedback the way you like, you know, when a guy is super hard and Mm -hmm. something you're doing is clearly working. Yes. Yes. But then it's like erection is erection on men and uh, wetness on females. Those aren't clear indicators of intense arousal. Those are those are things. But. I mean, there's the erection that's like baseline turned on and then there's like super duper turned on. And those are two different places. How do you, what are the signs for you that it's stimulating the guy beyond the erection? Um, uh, obviously, it, I mean, breathing. I was just going to say. Breathing, um, obviously body movements. Um, a lot of people struggle when they give blowjobs with 
um, like humping or like the thrusting thing. And there are certain things you can do to counter that or work that into. To well, counter that so that it's so not that, overwhelming to your throat. Right, exactly. Because it can just be a challenge, the bucking. Um, but then there are ways to calm that down, communicate, please don't do that. or or Kidney punch. <laughs> well, also, the what I tell people is the rate at which they thrust, if you match that speed exactly... Um, to what they're doing, they might calm down because then they, they've they passed on the information they're trying to give you, which is, please go the speed. Um, and they just sort of chill out. It's a great idea. Uh, thank you. Yeah, it's important. It's easy. Get it out to the world. And it's um, the same technique you use when you're receiving a pass in hockey. You do. You move your, <laughs> oh, really? you move your stick back because uh, if, you, if you hold your stick completely fixed, the puck is going to bounce over your stick. So you just gently move it back at the speed the puck is coming. So you cradle it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yes. Yeah. And just like catching a softball or exactly. a softball. Like you, yeah. You, yeah. Um, it's amazing how we're, in a way, it's a mechanics. It, there's a lot of ergonomics to sex. And people don't think about these real basic things that can make it much easier, much more pleasurable. Um, so when it comes to men, um, besides just thrust, I mean, cause thrusting and movement and, and sounds and breathing, those are important, but also there are these moments of release before orgasm where someone kind of goes, oh, okay. And they, and so I noticed that if you create these pockets of safety and relaxation before orgasm, they can get higher and higher, uh, more aroused and then kind of relax. I got this from uh, Dr. Stella Resnick, who's a LA-based uh, sex therapist. She's great, um, but you want them to re- relax into their arousal because if you have arousal without relaxation, you just get—it's a very fight or flight. It's like, oh my god, all of these sensations. But if you can, huh? I, I, I just finish your thought, and then I'll ask the the question. Oh, it just if you can create moments of of comfort and. Um, safety within intense arousal you can climb higher i guess in terms of how intense the sensuality can go um but, but that that to me is more like the oh, okay you know oh, it's just that 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 sigh out um and you can do that in in many ways but what what how do you create that that safety or attempt to create that safety in them and what do you think is going on in their mind that allows them to relax more um how how to do i mean this is again this is like uh, so many things but um and of course this is all opinion there are no right or wrongs in sex except for don't put anything that's not flared in your butt because then you'll lose it maybe and then that's sad (laughs) don't do that Uh, and consent of course for all of this um enthusiastic consent um well this is the honestly this works for females too this is for everyone but like if you were going down a female and just like licking the clit like let's say they like the clit licked and they're just like get it get it all clit all the time like great maybe they'll come yay but if you take your hands and just press on the outer labia like right where the hair grows and just press in while you're doing that you're creating a something that they can press up against, right? And create connection. And connection feels really important in sex. Same with men around the base of the penis. If you can press into the pelvis, they can press against that. Or pressing into the shaft. Um, a lot of people don't give enough pressure uh, to the shaft. 
And just like the vagina inside likes pressure on the walls out, it's the exact opposite for for penises. They like pressure in. So pressure in can feel really good um, even if you're spending most of your time on the head with a lot of licking and sucking and things, which can, I mean, the head the head of the penis is basically a giant clit. I mean, they're analogous. Um, so it's it's like in music, like creating good bass beat sensation while you're creating a little like ding, 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 ding. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you want to create a... More a than wide, one thing. A happening. wide spectrum of, of types of sensation. It's it's high. It's like music. It's, it's so many metaphors and it's... There's so much to say, but yeah, that's some basics on that. Is that is that helpful? It is absolutely helpful. Uh, a lot of this is is uh, illuminating. Yeah. Uh, to me, oh. I mean, some of it I know from experience, but mm-hmm. um, some of it I've is all is is all new to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know people listening um, will probably feel that same way. So, mm-hmm. thank you for that information. Uh, what are the, what are some other things from from your life that we can we can touch on? Oh, so many things. I mean, do you want to go into mental illness? Do you want to talk about? Um, I don't know. There's let's so much life. About, There's so much life to live. Let's talk about uh, mental illness. What are the, we've talked about your uh, negative inner monologue? What are what are some other battles that you find yourself fighting with your brain or your emotions? Oh. Hmm. God, perfectionist is, perfectionism is so much. I mean, just because of the title and like I know the focus of this. Ah, oh, my own. It's so fake. I don't know. It's fake. Vague. Oh, so vague. Yeah. It's um. I mean, I deal with a lot of. I think I've realized actually in sex, um. Because, I talk about safety a lot. I mean, to feel emotionally safe and physically safe with your partner or party or with yourself even. Um, and I know a lot of people have guilt and whatnot. And though... Um, when you say party, you mean multiple partners? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like, yeah, yay, 20 people, whatever. I don't, yeah. Is um, because this is not something that I would... This is a personal anecdote. This is something for me. It's not for anyone else necessarily. But for me, I realize... Because I've done a lot of experimenting and a lot of exploration the last couple of years, um, especially because of my work. It's, well, what is, you know, like, I've gone, like, people that listen to my podcast know, like, once in a while I'll go to a uh, sexy party. Um, and I hang out at the snack table a lot. And, you know, I reference, like, I'm really into the carrot sticks. Um, I, I, I don't understand what you're saying. No, I just, I, I, I'm, I really like snacks. Emotional okay. eater. I'll just use, there's no... There's no metaphor there. Um, but oh, I, I thought you were saying that you were going to a swingers uh, party or something. Yeah, I just, I hide near the food. You know, I just like watch everyone. You know? Oh, okay. So you yeah. were, you are talking about going to yes. a, oh, yeah, a, a, yeah, yeah. Or, what's but the difference between just... a swingers party and an orgy? Um, or sex party or sensual play party or BDSM party. Honestly, they're, I mean, swingers have their own, and I did an episode on swinging. It's, it's, it's a culture unto themselves. Um, oftentimes people are in pairs, oftentimes married couples, not necessarily. Mm. And the play is usually heterosexual or, uh, girl on girl. Um, man on man isn't as accepted, but it's starting to be. 
Um, so there's a specific rules in England of engagement, I think, in swinger parties specifically. Um, but an orgy, I've only been to one party who really, where, where I looked around and was like, oh shit, this is a, this is an orgy. Look, this look is at, Roman. Yeah, this is super Roman. And it was just like after the welcoming circle and people kind of checking in and, and saying their boundaries and like everyone going around the circle. It just like, usually like for half an hour, I just hang out, chat with some people I haven't seen for a while. Like it's no big deal. But like the minute people broke up, there was boning all around me. I was like, <gasps> like. And a few of my, like, just on the patio, I'm like, there's a lot of sex happening. And they're like, yeah, it's full on orgy this year. Like, you know, just, <laughs> it was, so it was kind of startling. I was like, oh, okay. Um, but as sex party or orgy, just a lot of sex. And people imagine it's just chaos, but no, there are so many boundaries that people have in these spaces. There's a lot of negotiation. People will uh, come together with people they've already had sexual relationships with, so they already kind of know the drill. So when you see people, if you're ever, for you, if you're ever in a situation where you're at a swinger party or whatever, and it looks like people haven't negotiated and they're just going to town, they probably have known each other at a previous party. I got you. Or, yeah. What do you experience when you're, have you ever participated or are you oh, just- Oh, yeah. A, definitely, definitely. What, give me some snapshots um, from your experience and- well, like, um, as I was starting to say earlier, I have, have realized after the last few years that my own personal safety, um, and I mean like emotional safety, uh, especially is I tend to feel not uncomfortable, but that isn't like it's outside my comfort zone, uh, for sure. And I like feeling outside my comfort zone, but I think I've gotten to the point in sex where you okay, mean having public sex, public sex. Yeah. Or, or all sorts of sex or, or one night stands or polyamory and lots of different relationships and, uh, sharing my heart with lots of people, sharing my goods with lots of other people. Um, like I realize how I'm kind of a homebody and I kind of, the, the, the stuff that I like to explore is much bigger than the stuff, than the bucket of stuff that I actually enjoy, like truly. And so I've realized this now, but still sex parties are fun. Um, because you can, like I had a party thrown in my honor that I was so pleased and, and thankful for because I'd never been the center of attention. I'm so much, the, I'm like, the, I'm the armchair anthropologist. I you know, I'm the observer all the time. Like I've been that way since I was a kid. I just love watching other people. Um, I don't really enjoy voyeurism um, like erotically. Like it's not erotic it's to me. It's more intellectual. It's more intellectual. It's more, to me, it's more, um, it feels good to feel connected to other humans in our sexuality. So for me, group experiences of being able to watch other people, it's more like, oh, I'm not broken and I'm not different. We're all here together and we're all like these things. Like it just, it feels good to be in that space. So you do or have experienced shame around your sexuality clearly in the in the past for you to have that that moment of I'm not broken, other people are enjoying this type of thing. I yeah, mean, that that's kind of... Yeah, it's I, like I, a, imagine if you have only ever eaten food by yourself or with one other person never in public never with other people and then all of a sudden you're at a buffet it's pretty cool it'd be like oh my god look at us all eating like we're all really like chocolate you know it's like what yeah. it's it's um it's because sex is so taboo in in many ways to talk about or experience together um, and in terms of my own shame around sex, I mean, oh my God, I read your, <gasps> the sec like sexual shame and uh, deep fantasies, uh, survey. And I was looking at, um, so many people have 
like their deepest, darkest secret is that they secretly want to be raped by someone that they like or that they want to take advantage of another person. There's a lot of non-consensual type fantasies or um, that they had uh, some sort of homosexual experience or there's just so much of that. And it's I remember a time in my life where I struggled with those feelings. And what were the specific feelings? Um lots of distress over my orientation like tons of distress because even though i knew it was okay that i was bi or i my orientation shifts tons like i'm all about men all the time sometimes i'm all about women all the time sometimes i'm i'm both i i like everybody i just my orientation is so fluid um that i could never really make a strong choice about it like i am this i am that i'm kind of like I just like people. I'm really. Yeah, and why should you have to make a choice? Right, well, I, and I think that's the th- maybe that's the point you were going to make is that people get hung up on I've got to fit into a box. They've got to fit into the box, and also it's um a label is rigid. I mean, once you're gay, you're gay, you, and you can't go and date an opposite sex person. That's you're breaking the rules. Because then, does it mean that you're not gay? Right, and it means maybe you're lying to us the whole time, or yeah. maybe you're. And it's like no, I I have my orientation is. Uh, so many things so it was having a lot of shame and also and also because um and like being half filipino half irish i wasn't quite asian enough to be like like i i'm ethnically i've never really fit in anywhere like i'm all and i'm nothing um i'm just i'm in so many ways i'm just in the middle where i'm all the things very two-spirit you know, have you ever heard Two Spirit? Like this, the Native American thing for you. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm very much masculine and feminine. Like sometimes I feel like a man. Like I just feel like I'm a dude right now. And sometimes I'm like, like I'm a girl. It, it just depends on my day and my mood. So I just, the fluidity of me is frustrating at times, but I've just learned to flow with it. Do you, what, what are some aspects to your sexuality that, you have learned to be comfortable with because you thought you were going to be judged by them, either things you think or things that you like to do. Oh my God, there's so many. There's so many, I can't even... Uh. Okay, first of all, there was a word that I it kept coming up again and again in my fantasies um, in high school and college, just in my own masturbation and whatnot. Um and it was a word and I was with a trusted partner. I mean, he was wonderful. And I just, there was one day where I was like, I really, and I kept wanting to say it in bed and, but I just, my throat was just closed around it. And it was so humiliating. It was, it was awful how humiliating it was. Um, but I just couldn't get over the fact that I kept wanting to say it. And so I'm telling, I'm just like, look, there's a word I need to and I'm afraid, you know, I'm afraid that you'll judge me for it. I think it's weird. And I, all the thing, all the weird feelings. And he was like, okay, what is it? And I just, it took me a good 10 minutes. Of like, mm, uh, mm, I was like a little Muppet, like, uh, mm, like, it was just, and I was like shaking my body out. Like, I can't, oh, oh. And I was like, maybe I should write it down. And the word was daddy. Um, and I, to me, that was a really uh, comforting word that, um, didn't feel attached to my actual family group, but it was just something I really wanted to use with my partner. And it was horrifying because it was just, there were so many negative meanings to it. And I hadn't processed 
what that feeling was. And, and my partner was like, okay, uh, all right, you know, and, and I'm an incredibly affectionate kind of like curl up in a little ball on your lap type person. So I like that feeling of, um, of someone being a little bit more of like a caretaker figure, you know? So, um, because I'm also very much a caretaker. And so when I, when I want to be more vulnerable, I tend to really like that feeling of safety in another person. So like I've processed it like 15 years later, but is it a word that you, you wanted to call him daddy or? Yes. Okay. Yeah. What, um, was there a phrase that you, you just wanted to call him daddy, but, or, or was there a phrase or a situation or a role playing that you wanted to, uh, uh, explore? Um, well, my relationship with that word and and role plays have changed a lot. I mean, when when you actually drop all the drama of feeling and judging yourself and actually explore the things, a couple years in, you're kind of like, all right, been there, done that, yeah, or like that's nice, and it just sort of recedes into the mosaic of life. Whereas, like, that's a thing I like, and it's no longer this huge drama, yeah. and so it's just I've done that so many times with so many things that. Um, definitely I have enjoyed like incest role play. Um, but more than that, I, I realized that I have enjoyed for a long time power, power plays where someone is in a place of power and I'm not. Um, and that can be really hard for a lot of people to accept, but I've also gone through the, the period of accepting that I am giving my power over for a temporary because I am powerful myself. And it is free for you to take it back at any moment. Exactly. So it's the illusion that you're giving your 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 power away in reality. It's, yes. It's for that moment and it's self-contained, mm-hmm. you know, which I think is an important distinction, especially for women who um, can only come thinking about being raped or men mm-hmm. who can only come... Well, actually, many men uh, can only come thinking about being taken or mm-hmm. being the woman mm-hmm. and being penetrated. Mm-hmm. I mean, in every variety in between. And I just want to say to them, let it go. Mm-hmm. Let it go. Yeah, it's, I've thought about it a ton. And I may not be the most eloquent person to talk about this subject. but And also, just, I mean, for listeners, if you're like struggling with these things, I do have a an episode on the Sex Nerd Sounder podcast called Hardcore Roleplay, where they talk about rape fantasy and even murder fantasy and, and a lot of that. And, and the couple that does it, they play together and our educators talk about it. And she was actually a, uh, a victim of rape uh, or a survivor of rape uh, previously. And actually it's helped her. Um... Anyway, basically they're a loving partnership and they talk about their crazy, crazy role plays, and it's a lot of fun. So that's something that can be helpful for people, um, that s- episode. But for for me... Um, I mean, can, if you can, say can, rape be, be, before you say that, I just want to ask a question about that person. Was was it helpful to her because it allowed her to regain a sense of of control about it, or was it something where her sexuality had been changed and that was the primary thing that got her off, or both? I don't recall specifics. I know that she. Uh, remembers being uh, kink identified or like being noticing that she was into some kink before that had happened. So part of it was reclaiming what was there already um, and whether or not there is trauma in your past. That might be a part of it. Also, being overtaken by someone who can't help it because you're just so freaking hot is really 
gratifying. And that's a hu- that is so common in the surveys. That's one of the most popular ones that people have is just the idea that somebody cannot control themselves. Right. And within the if you want to explore this when you have someone who is loving and who is there and wants to and a lot of people who are asked to be the rape raper basically have a lot of bad, negative feelings about being that person even because they don't really understand why on earth they'd want their their partner would want them to do that um and some people want like a loving rape some people want it like incredibly violent um i role played once with my partner several years ago uh, like a really violent rape scene um which was really like a lot of wrestling and me and i think it's also like the just the amount of muscle and energy that you are receiving from a person trying to hold you down and the amount of energy you can use to fight them off that is an incredibly intense physical experience it's like your whole body is 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 having kind of like that pressure you were talking about against the against the channels but your whole body is experiencing that yeah having something to wrestle against um can really help with orgasm it's actually just your muscles engaging like that just erotically is great but we got so tired from from him (laughs) like i think we just collapsed and he just collapsed on me and i'm like i really tired now he's like me too (laughs) we just were like (laughs) and ironically you said uncle which then became a different (laughs) fantasy (laughs) um but yeah there's there's so much health in in these things that people just see the darkness there's a lot of light in in these these things that are in in people's minds and it doesn't have to be so awful it's assuming there's safety in that in that part or in trust right Right. Yes. It's, I think the key is consent because for instance, in my mind, if I fantasize about a group of five guys gang banging me, let's just say that's a thing and it's non-consensual. So, um, in the fantasy, in the fantasy, in the, so that's a fantasy in my brain where I imagine five guys, let's say, um, at a party and all of a sudden I get dragged into the back room and, and I've been drinking too much. Oh, like slut shame. Oh, I should have you know known better, which is totally false. And it's kind of a silly thing to think. But and five guys just overtake me. OK, so that's a fantasy in my brain. I'm just creating this. This isn't a specific thing that's actually I create something that's not actually my thing. But in, if I were to fantasize about that, the guys would be doing everything I really like. They would right. touch my boobs exactly the way I like. They would play with my bo- my clit exactly perfectly. They would, you know, they'd even kiss me and be like, isn't she cute? You know, like they would say, it would be like basically worship of me, but kind of rough. So I could like bite back or something. You know, like it would be a cartoonish version of an, I mean, it, yeah. Like it's, I am in complete control of that fantasy. I basically have five puppets in my mind getting to do anything that I, you know, it's... So, in really, in reality, you're the one in control in the fantasy because they're doing what you want. Whereas if you went out and said, well, clearly this is a fantasy I want. I, I need to go try to make this happen. There's going to be details to it that you hadn't anticipated that are going to oh yeah, like, not be positive. Right. No, exactly. And... No, the idea of being actually, I mean, it's horrifying. Like, the idea of being, being a woman and being five foot two and kind of small, you know, um, the idea of actually being raped is something that is a real possibility in my life. And that is a difficult thing. Like, my personal safety, I feel uncomfortable walking to my car at night. Like, I'm, I have studied 
some martial arts just to try and get a leg up in it. But it's like, wow, I've lived, I have, the fact that I've lived basically 30 years not having been raped is, like, I'm so thankful for that. You know, and that's all I can really, I mean, there's a lot of things I can do, but it's just, it's a difficult thing to live that reality in my life. So, no, that's not something I actually want. Jeez. Um, but with a consenting, loving partner who knows how to please me and stuff, it's it's a good laugh. I mean, it's a lot of fun. Do you um, laugh at the beginning of role play? When my wife and I have role played, there is a moment of about 30 seconds at the beginning where we both can't stop laughing. That's so normal. Yeah, it's it's because it's hysterical because it's and also who's a really good actor when it comes to role playing? N- not that many people. Um, but uh, the trick is don't look at each other in the eye. Um, but also the thing is also is figure out what you like about the fantasy because what I like about a rape role play may not be the something somebody else likes about it. I might like the being held down because I like I have a lot of energy in my body, so I like having things I can push off of. I'm just I'm a very I'm like a small chihuahua. I'm just like ah. Um, somebody else might like the really awful things like just the creepy things that the person might say to them it might give them like a weird shiver that kind of like it's like morbid hotness um but that may not work for me you know another person might just like the way their vagina feels or their ass feels when it's invaded before it's ready because that can be an erotic shock um which can also be uncomfortable and damaging so pre-lube if you're penetrating someone during one of these like pre-lube your stuff so that it's not so damaging <laughs> in that scenario um but yeah in in consensual non-consent there's a lot of different ways you can play it so you have to figure out what what is it for you mm-hmm. i actually brought a book um that I, i've been reading called the erotic mind have you heard of it who's it by uh, uh dr jack morin yes yes and he talks about creating hurdles um things that well, I'll, I'll let you explain, okay, but I'm, it was mind-blowing to, I'm reading to me. five different books at once right now and writing a book. So um, I haven't... I know that... Um, what is it? Attraction plus obstacle equals eroticism. Yes. So creating... Um, Something sometimes that, that you're morally... You find objection objectionable mm-hmm. can be the most erotic thing yeah. to you. Oh, yeah. Throw a little taboo in there. You know, ooh, I didn't do my homework. We're like, oh, boss. Like, you're like just anything, just slightly, yeah. Pretend you're 17 for two seconds and see if they get harder. Um, <laughs> you know, just, it's it's fun. But um, the beginning of the book, he talks about peak erotic experiences. And a lot of his survey work was around, you know, what are your top fantasies and what are your top experiences? And it's really instead of hating yourself for what turns you on or what you secretly would like to do to another person examine it really slow it down and be like is it the look on their face is it is it their fear is it the feeling of power is it the the loss of power is it to feel attractive is it um is it so go underneath yeah and really just spend time with it and don't judge it just the minute you feel a judgment just breathe deep breathe out slowly and, and let that go and just you know play your own be your own scientist um, or, and you can also find a sex therapist that, that can help spend time with that. Cause I have done, and as I've gone through therapy and found, found my own, my own self empowered and, and my own self worth changing the way I have approached, um, 
sexual pleasure with a partner has changed a lot. And so something like, let's say, a daddy little girl fantasy, which is actually quite common, the role, the roles have stayed the same, but my fantasies have actually changed. Those two characters in my mind interact differently now than they, they did How a couple so? years ago. Um, now the person that I am um, uh, will uh, initiate or be more of a brat or be like, I want, you know, or like whatever it is that I want, you know, and the person will be like, okay. And are these things that you act out or is this just playing in your in your brain? More of my brain. I'm more... Yeah, it's more, I just have a really rich fantasy. I've always been a daydreamer and I have a rich fantasy life. And even though I'm not a, a fiction writer, I probably would have a lot of fun with that because I play with characters in my brain. And so, but I just noticed that, you know, within just healing my own self-worth um, and kindness, I've actually, in my own fantasies, and that's just one example, like, but I just noticed like, oh, that's interesting. Um, but I, I think... My own sex life, I've gone through so many stages and I don't share as much of my current sex life because that's where a lot of my own magic happens. Like I'll talk about that in a year or two because like there's a lot of stuff. But I notice my own brain, that's what happens. Um, but sure, it comes out in lots of ways. It comes out in the way I talk to people at the bank, you know? Like, I feel better about myself, even though there's still shame around pumpkins. <laughs> yeah. What aspect of your sexuality have you struggled the most to make peace with man most beside honestly more than the activities of what i do in the bedroom it's probably been my orientation and my relationship styles because i identify polyamorous and there's been a lot of pain around are you familiar with polyamory? I've heard the term, and I know that it, it means not being committed to, to one person, but mm -hmm. having a continuing relationship with more than one person. Is that? Um, It can be. It's, it's such an umbrella term, and it's such a new... I mean, people have been practicing this for forever or um, in American culture for decades, but it's a lot of people are being introduced to it in the past couple of years, and so... As a relationship trend, I think that people have been searching for permission for a different way of being outside monogamy or a different way to do monogamy even. Um, but for me, I had, even from my first relationships in middle school and high school, I had crushes on other people. I had feelings for other people. And I have at times been deeply in love with three people at once. And the fact that society there are no, there is nothing outside the rules of you love one person. And if you love someone else, it means that first person that you loved, you probably don't love them. You know, that, that kind of thing. And so I struggled a lot with guilt to be in monogamous relationships and just deeply long and want to be close to another person. But knowing that also that didn't affect, like I still loved this first person. Um, and it was exhausting. Because of the, the, things you were telling yourself about it or yeah, that, or the managing of that were you acting on this no that's okay. the thing is i i had a few slip-ups uh where i made out with someone that i liked um i think the number three three times in my college years i kissed someone else 
and then like immediately broke up with the person I was dating because like, there's something wrong. Like there was something clearly mm-hmm. wrong. So in terms of I didn't have any ongoing affairs. Like I was I'm incredibly loyal. So if I if I'm committed to someone, I'm going to be committed to them. And it's but it also caused a lot of intense pain for me um, because I had no one to talk to about it. And so it was just this thing I was feeling like, what's the matter with me? What's the matter with me? Um, am I with the right person? It was all that. All the I watched Paul. Uh, I wait, Paul Glamartin. That's your name, right? Yes. Okay. Like I was sorry. We hugged on the stairs, and I'm like realizing I've only actually used your or seen your name visually, so I haven't actually used your name to your face. So it mm-hmm. threw me off. Um, that was a weird moment. Um, but uh, what was I saying? Oh, about the I, relationships were really painful for me, and I'd watch. Oh, I'd watched. Ugh, I'm embarrassed to. When Harry met Sally, while you were sleeping, the truth about cats and dogs, Runaway Bride. I watched all of the romantic comedies. I was addicted to them as a teenager. So that story of falling in love and finding the one was, was and Disney movies, and it's just such a strong narrative. And the fact that my heart was not uh, following the rules Mm -hmm. um, was incredibly, like there was something wrong with me or that I wasn't getting to the bottom. Like I was trying to solve a mystery or or a problem that wasn't really a problem. Um, I don't think there's any voice in our head regarding our sexuality more than what's wrong with me. (laughs) That is the greatest hit. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with me. And if you're not hurting anybody, there is nothing wrong with you. Right. But then I knew that if I would tell them, it would probably hurt them. And so it was, because it was the last thing I wanted to do. Um, And I thought about affairs and I thought, and I thought about, you know, what, what would it mean if, let's say my partner cheated on me? Would I be okay with that? Probably not. But it was more the deception. It was the lying. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, fast forward to now. The last couple of years, I've really played with polyamory a lot. I made a lot of mistakes, a lot of awkward dates where I didn't feel that great after. You know, that's that's the number one thing is if you don't feel that good after about yourself, probably not the, not the uh, right thing. Because you uh, were physical with them or just being on a date and... Uh, I think feeling like I, that's what I was supposed to do to be polyamorous is go on a lot of dates and... And, and clearly your partner knew this. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or be single and trying to date two people at once like intensely, which failed miserably. And I ended up losing someone who was incredibly important to me because I just was the sloppiest poly person ever. And I realize now that I do not have the time or energy for more than one person most of the time. I just don't. And I don't want to split my energy and attention between two people in a way where I'm not fully connected with either of them. Uh, I don't want to skim the surface, so I have enough present uh, difficulty being present for one partner. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine the the bulk of responsibility for for being present and uh, for more than one person. That just sounds overwhelming yeah. to me. I mean, clearly the place you go to is yeah, you get to fuck more than one person, and there's that newness to mm-hmm. it, and it gets mixed up. It's kind of like going back to the food metaphor you had instead of mm-hmm. having pizza as your only meal then you get mm-hmm. to you know throw in 
tacos or whatever. Tacos are great. Yeah, once in a while, maybe if you're committed to pizza, you know, you get back to pizza, you're like, yeah, you're pretty good still, a little sexy. Um, but I yeah, mean, non-monogamy really, I have found, invigorates my attraction to my my yeah. partner. It really does. What are the drawbacks to it? Oh, there's so many. I mean, there's lots of positives and negatives, um, but... And clearly your partner is kept abreast of this and there's boundaries and... Yeah, well, and, see, what, I, what I'm doing currently is... Is like I am just loving. I'm in. I'm probably in my first incredibly healthy. Because that's the thing about relationships. It's we don't have a lot of models for what's healthy. And I'm finding that I'm in an incredibly healthy relationship. I'm deeply happy. And so I'll have exploratory like parties, or I might have a date with a friend. But really, what's an exploratory party? Like I kind of go to kind of see what everyone's doing and I might have a new experience or I'll be, oh, what my friends had planned for me is I was the center of everyone and so that everyone was touching me and and like I said, these are my, my boundaries. I don't want anyone to penetrate me unless it's with a toy or I don't, you know. Um, just, yeah, so I like experiences but generally, romantically, I don't know, I, I've come to understand that I love my friends and some of my friends I really want to cuddle with and some of my friends I want to make out with once in a while. But it's it's affectionate. It's not... Um, you know, I do have deep love for some of my friends. I, I think it's just understanding that your friendships can be blur, blurring the line sometimes. Um, but nothing comes close to the relationship that I, I am, I'm in. Like, it's just, it's nothing. I mean, they all have their place, but... I deeply adore being partnered. And is that person polyamorous as well, or they're just consenting to you being polyamorous? Um, oh God, I I had a partner last year who was not was really. It's this is a common thing for people who are poly is they find someone they really like and they like them, but they're not poly, and so they try and be enough poly that it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and. I'm such a I'm such a like homebody now. I'm just like so mellow about the whole thing that I don't have any strong urges. Like I really, from all it really just looks like I'm monogamous, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but my partner is not actively polyamorous. You know, he's just kind of like, "Yay, you!" And I'm like, "Yay, us!" Like we're just happy to be together. Um, and, and does he want to know what happened when you went on a date or went to a party? Or does he not want to know? Does he ask? I come from a place where I want to know every detail. Like, I love the details. And I feel like I'm someone's, like, my partner's best friend when I know the details. I'm like, oh, my God. And I found that not everyone's like that. And so he mainly just wants to know that I had a good time, that everybody was safe, and that, you know, yeah, our boundaries were were kept and they are so you know that's just the way he rolls what's the longest relationship you've had with anybody in your in your life uh, three, or, three and a half years yeah yeah and what led to that ending well i've had three relationships that were uh three years or uh, and three and a half was the longest um but generally i loved them i've always been the one to break up with someone oh there's a thing um and is there go ahead things have changed a lot the last few years so before that it was usually just because the we didn't have a future together like i didn't want to have kids or they wanted to marry me and i was really happy not living with them or i was growing and i grow really fast like i 
expand myself a lot. I learn a tons and I explore. I'm very, you know, very free spirit about it. So, um, it's usually it just, and I think at some point the communication just stops and I didn't have the tools to open up and express the things that I needed. So I would leave. And I think a lot of people do that in their relationships. Um, where I found now that if I communicate, Oh, it's way better. And you can, you can keep doing this for a lifetime. If you just keep communicating and it's cool. So I'm really happy about that change. Any other moments from your life before I get to some of the questions that, um, like major moments? Yeah. It's so weird because I'm usually the interviewer. So it's like, I try not to be the host. If it's Mm. like, I want to know all these things about you. Like you need to come on my podcast. I'd love to. Yeah. Okay. Good. I'd love to. Excellent. Like, um, cause I'm like, I want to know you. Um, oh God, honestly, there are so many, it's one giant mushy ball of memories and feelings. Like I'm all feelings all the time. So, um, I would say recently they're just, I'm sorry, you're interviewing me at a time where so much has happened like recently that, um, because to me, like, and I saw this actually in your surveys that, um, people who think of suicide as their plan B and I would say that a majority of my life I've considered suicide like plan B and since therapy and since really focusing on life skills that helped me deal with negative emotions in a healthy way and oh getting enough sleep every night and Mm -hmm. eating well those are two things um suicide is no longer my plan B and that was a major thing like now I can think about my life in a way where I can plan for the future in a way where I'm excited about my life. This, this is going to sound really corny, but it's uh, it's almost like you made a decision to be monogamous with yourself, like you're going to stick <laughs> around for yourself. <laughs> yeah, I've got life commitment. I had life commitment yeah. issues before. It's like I'm going to tough it out for better or for worse with myself instead yeah. of... Wanting to leave. Oh, wanting to right. leave. Oh. Yeah. Well, reality has always been so painful, and being myself has been painful, and now it's like, oh, oh, yeah. I didn't get it before, you know, so, I don't know. Congratulations on that. That's... Thank you. Really beautiful. Thanks. (laughs) And I I think because I've experienced that as well, I know how profound that is because Mm -hmm. you just assume it's going to be that way forever, which then kind of feeds it. Yeah. Do you have a long history of depression? (laughs) Oh. We'll get into it when I'm I'm a guest on your podcast. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh Oh, yeah. So uh, I want to ask you some of these questions. I I tweeted and Facebooked that I was going to be uh, interviewing you. And this one question I really wanted to ask you, which is um, from Twitter. Millie asks, what's the difference between recreating trauma in BDSM or fetish relationships and expressing healthy, empowered sex? Oh, that's a big question. Wait a minute. Uh, what's the difference between recreating trauma. trauma and BDSM? I, and I think the what she's saying is um, recreating trauma in a way that isn't healthy mm-hmm. and expressing healthy, empowered sex through either BDSM or mm-hmm. fetish, um, which is something I have always wondered about. Oh, okay. It sounds like we should talk about BDSM a little bit. Or fetish, you know, I I'm, I I think of this one survey um, 
that this guy had where he was molested by his babysitter mm-hmm. and um she made him finger her and it's the only thing that he can come to is porn where a woman is being fingered mm-hmm. hmm. like that fixation that fixation that i i suppose that would be considered a fetish and i see many many of them where that's their thing and my f- first instinct is to say it's healthy if that's the dessert and not the main meal mm-hmm. of your of your sexuality. That the 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 main meal is intimacy with somebody mm-hmm. that you trust, and then that can be expressed. Whereas you're just looking for somebody to provide that for you mm-hmm. and putting up with mm-hmm. the person outside of their genitals. Mm-hmm. I mean, now not being a sex therapist or a psychologist, I can't do any like deep delving. I mean, it would be irresponsible for me to assume things and state them like fact because I hate when people do that, especially around sex. Um, I thank you for 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 qualifying that. <laughs> I, seriously. Oh, th- thank you. Uh, you're welcome, etc. Um, but for me now, I have found myself fixated on different fantasies throughout my life, or and they'll kind of go away or whatever, and I'll notice like. If something is incredibly arousing about that, I think it's obviously there's like a really sharp shooting of, of feelings about that experience. And if nothing can come close, close to that, there's also can be numbness around the rest of it because you're so closed off. I honestly, when it comes to trauma like that, Sex therapist is really the best thing you can do for yourself and also reading up. I mean, the erotic mind is really interesting. But I would have so many more questions for that person. Yeah. You know, is it purely physical just, or does nothing else get them hard? Um, because that would be a, a pretty... People throw fetish, the word, around all the time. Mm-hmm. But if that's the only way that they can ejaculate and come uh, through fingering a female or thinking about it that is that's a pretty strong fetish uh, oftentimes people use that word for like a thing that really turns them on but it doesn't have to be there mm, so that i would done... not qualify as a fetish then well but, but people use a fetish as just something that's really hot and like extra extra mm. something something for them um and i really if people like that language the use of the word fetish for that fine but classically when i would look up fetish in, in the you know, clinical terms, it would be more like, this is the only way I can come. Um, so I don't have a whole lot to say about that specifically because there's so much more, like there's so yeah. much. But I will say about recreating trauma um, and BDSM is, one is the perception that BDSM, bondage, uh, discipline, um, sadomasochism, but then also uh, dominance and submission. Okay, yeah, I, I hit all six of them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you get a little dyslexic. Is... One consent. So people who have experienced trauma um, in BDSM, like what was called BDSM, but they weren't consenting. They said, like, yes, you can hit me. And then they just got beat to a pulp. That is not consensual BDSM because you don't know what you're consenting to. Or they were afraid to tell that person, exactly. I'm not into that. Right. That's not it, healthy BDSM mm-hmm. play. That's, yeah. Right. Or um, I knew someone who was... Um, their partner locked them up to the shower head in their shower. Like they couldn't, they basically were handcuffed in the shower for like hours standing and they just left them there like that because they said that they were their dom and that's nothing. And the person liked BDSM. So therefore that was BDSM. It's like, no, that's not BDSM. That's abuse. You know, and there's a huge difference between abuse and BDSM and it's about the consent um, for each 
engagement. You can withdraw your consent at any time. Um, so for someone who like, wants to walk you through a trauma that you've experienced and like replay it so that you can experience those things again and kind of process that and you have the safe word to like stop at any time. I mean, that can be incredibly healing if it you know, takes a lot of patience. So I think safe sex is, or healthy sex is where you are present and getting your needs met and like truly consenting. Like if you leave the experience feeling good and like three days later and a week later still feeling good about the experience, that is a great sign that you had healthy sex. No. And if you and some people though, they'll have amazing sex and right after they come or like right after they just get this like flood of guilt or whatnot. And that's an interesting thing to process too, is what is that what is that guilt? Like do you feel bad about the pleasure that you're experiencing? Do you feel bad that you you may have hurt your partner? Like I had a partner who felt bad every time we had sex after the fact, even though I liked it rough and what they were specifically doing to me, that thing, they really liked doing it to me, but because it was rough, they felt awful after, mm -hmm. even though I was like, this is great. We're friends. Yay. Love. But no. So I sat with them through that again and again, and I couldn't really find healing with them. So I was like, you need to see a sex therapist and really talk this out because I don't have the tools to help you with that. Mm -hmm. But I love you. You know, was it the thing that you had initiated or they had initiated? Um, well, well, sex was mutually initiated. <laughs> um, but the, that but, fantasy being tossed out there is, hey, let's. I mean, honestly, this. I think it was just a position and a firm ramming. Like honestly, it was mm. really just a specific uh, amount of pen like strong penetration. Um, but that was fun for both of us and pleasurable at the time. You know, our bodies fit together well for that. It was like yay, and so it wasn't any specific fantasy. But they really liked to do it. Um, and then they'd feel bad. Yeah. I'm going to get to another question. I don't feel like I fully answered that. I'm sorry. Oh, no. I feel like you did. Okay. Yeah. Um, this what? is from Facebook. Mm hmm And she asks, I would like to know, I would love to know if female ejaculation is possible for all women or just those lucky few who are capable it's interesting because i feel like 10 years ago mm -hmm. that would not have been something that it would have been like oh i ejaculate you know that that women wouldn't have been proud of that but i feel like now that it's in it's, porn so much it's especially. in porn so much it's like oh i want that because mm -hmm. that's yeah something that turns men on or some right. men on i mean female ejaculation is a real thing it's not urine i would say um from what i gather in, in my conversations with people in the industry that um, a lot of what you see in porn is urination. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, well, some of them really do squirt, um, but it's, I mean, to have a physical cue, like a, like a visual cue that the female is coming and it, and it's similar to male ejaculation. So it's just like this, hooray, you squirted, like visual proof. Um, it's no wonder that it's exciting because it's like I know for a fact you don't have to tell me. Although feeling the physical muscle muscular yeah. contractions internally would be a really because when you orgasm you have that the um. The I always put a finger in my wife's butt and say you weren't lying. You really <laughs> were coming. <laughs> good man, good man. Um, but um, 
wait, I, I get very uh, squirrel about this. That's because I can never oh. not, not put a barrage of questions before <laughs> somebody has finished asking one. So, oh, I love it. The, I love the, the female ejaculation. Um, can can all women do it, or just, just a lucky few? I was just thinking about the idea that all people do a thing. Like, do all men ejaculate? No, some men have retrograde ejaculation where it goes into the bladder instead of comes out. Does that mean they're not coming? No, that doesn't mean they didn't have a great time and just a good time as if they were ejaculating. It just means that I went the other way and it's just, you know, sometimes it's a prostate thing. Um, not all men can, some men can ejaculate and come when they're soft. You no, know, on women, women, human bodies can come can have you can have an orgasm from someone licking your neck the right way if you're in the right mood like the human body is capable of so much so vaginas can you can come internally you can come from the clit externally you can have blended orgasms you can it's and ejaculation is not the same as orgasm so to think of those two as the same is not accurate um so for me to say that all women can do it That's like saying all people can urinate. Some people have need medical help to urinate. So for me to say all people can urinate is technically not accurate. But it seems that unless there's some sort of medical reason, most likely most female bodies can probably ejaculate. There's, to to some degree. It's a function of yeah. the human body. It's not It's not outside the realm of... Of normal to is be able to for those that want to be able to visually ejaculate, or something that they can do. Well, one do your uh, Kegel exercises with your PC muscles, and that means squeezing the muscles that you can hold your pee in with. Don't do it while you're peeing because you can get a UTI, a urinary tract infection, by doing that. But um, and that's not only squeezing, pulling in, and holding. It's also relaxing and pushing out. It's having a wide range of flexibility with those muscles, um, and and gaining. Um, Gaining strength there can help with pushing out ejaculation. It can help with multiple orgasms. You, you squeeze, squeeze really nicely on on things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, female ejaculation is a lot of fun. It's and are you able to? I've done it a handful of times in my life. Um, were also, you, were you given a trophy afterwards? I felt like I had won a trophy. <laughs> um, but I'll say that some women female ejaculate and they don't realize it because it's not a squirting for a lot of people. It's actually a trickle. I see. So I'm like, my I trickle if you go in anally with me and, and go toward the G-spot. If there's nothing in vaginally, for some reason that angle and the anatomy of it, I can feel intense G-spotting just anally, just inside past the sphincter muscles. And I trickle. And I'm like, well, look at that. I don't need to pee at all. And I'm just like trickling. I'm like... It's not. It's not really a great party trick because I'm trickling, but it's like. I think you should put that on your biography. <laughs> that should be on your byline, and if a finger is put in just be past her sphincter, she can trickle. Yeah. Does it feel good? That's the major question. Um, God, the print is so small on this. Um, I'm putting off having to have reading glasses all the time. By the way. Oh, me too. Um. I'd like to know more about how early teenage sexual activity affects the development and adult sexual health. That I think that's such a wide-ranging question. Um, that's I'm going to try to find one that's that's more specific than than that. Yeah, I'd I'd, I'd love to go on Google Scholar and look up some stuff about that. Um, but yeah, you 
it's when I talk to people about sexual experience, their found their first experiences can be so foundational to the f- the framework. I mean, you're basically starting a new mental map of a whole area of your brain that you didn't have before. And so what breaks my heart is that people who have negative experiences like uh, sexual abuse, trauma, rape, or just sort of a weird, just like a, like an odd gray area coercion, you don't report it, but you just feel bad after, mm-hmm. um, you're kind of starting your sexual experiences in the red. And so the important thing is to create positive sexual experiences and self-love um, to balance that out and, and and broaden your sexual experience. Because if you just focus on that trauma and that's all there is with sex, you just are getting such a sliver of the juicy pie that is sex. Um, breaks my heart. Yeah, and I, I think that for that healing to occur, trust has to be rebuilt in human beings and other other human beings. Like that's the foundation then that the, the sexuality can kind of spring from. Yeah. Definitely. Um, Instead of I just need to find people that make me come hard because right. I think that's kind of the cart before the before the horse. Right. The uh, sex as sport. Um, I think of it as more of a trust exercise than, than a sport um, because ideally everyone wins. You know, there's no losers. But there is a book called Urban Tantra. Tantra books can tend to be a little woo-woo-woo, but Urban Tantra is like really hardcore like legit practical and the first third of the book is uh, exercises for one and for anyone who's had like negative experiences or just feeling really out of touch with their body like you said they're not in their body or you weren't in your body before uh they're just basic exercises to just feel feel yourself just get rid of the numbness really yeah so and oftentimes you don't know that you're numb until you don't feel numb and it's like oh wow yeah um Am I talking too much? I feel like I've talked to someone. No, 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 no. Are drugs like uh, Viagra and Cialis sometimes used in cases where they're, they could actually, um, where therapy could actually help? Um, can their use only mask the problems in a relationship? That's an interesting question. Oh, that's, that's actually, it's a great question. Oh, man, good question. Um well, okay, I had this uh, doctor, Dr. Dudley Danoff, uh, on my show for a Penis Power Hour, and he's a urologist. Um, he wrote a book called Penis Power. Um, I love the title. He confirmed what I'd figured would be the case, and when people come to him for erectile dysfunction issues, um, it's usually emotional, like 99% of the time. It's an emotional thing. It's a psychological thing. Which is very much, it's not like it's, it, and I hate the idea, like, it's all in your head, get over it. That is not the case. That's not what I'm saying. But that. But often it is. But often it is. <laughs> and get over it is not the, no. the path to, to take that just contributes to it. No, but it, it takes work and attention. And I think it's, it can, do you, can you spare the amount of attention you need to give to yourself to move on uh, and work through those feelings? Um, but. You know, anxiety, stress just kills arousal. And, and the sexual functioning is a natural part of our life, just like digestion, just like breathing. Sexual arousal is natural. It's if you leave it alone, you don't do much to it. It'll it'll do what it's going to do generally. Um, and unless you're you have cardiovascular issues or or, or a physical or a prostate issue or something that's keeping you from uh, getting an 
erection, it's most likely emotional. Yeah. I, I, and I think there's nothing that probably contributes more to people having difficulty being aroused with a partner than sweeping shit under the rug mm. because it's easier than trying to find the words to express what we're feeling or maybe not even thinking we have a right to express what it is that we're feeling because yeah. we don't know how or that relationship with that person communication is at mm -hmm. such a you know such a neanderthal level yeah and, and it's it's so important to to be able to connect um through a nice dinner or just a nice conversation but but if you have something on your mind that's bugging you Often it feels much bigger in your head, but then if you know if your partner tends to get defensive or you don't know how to communicate, like one of the best things I ever did was go to couples group couples therapy with a partner of mine because we were having some communication problems and I learned so much about how to talk to my partner and I saw how bad other couples were. Like we were actually pretty good at it compared to others and just seeing the breakdown of relationships through communication. It's awful. Yeah, yeah don't use the word always and never when... When talking mm. about them, express it in terms of your feelings. Yes. Inst instead of saying, you do this, say, when this happens, I feel this yeah. way. When this happened, I felt this way. And don't say, you make me feel, because nobody makes you feel anyway. Totes. You there's There is a, um, you allow people um, mm -hmm. to make you feel a, a, a certain way. But some people are toxic and some people can... Absolutely. can you know, I was reading this thing on someone posted on Facebook about, you know, marriage, marriage isn't for you. Marriage is for the person you're marrying and you marry for the family you're going to make and you marry for to love the person you're with. And that's what it's about. And it's like, but nowhere in the article was it like, well, but if you marry someone who's not loving and giving back to you, then then you're not getting what you need. Like it wasn't, it wasn't combining all the pieces and I was really yes. annoyed by it because it was going kind of viral. Uh, I was like, no, there's more. And that reminds me of like the, the toxicity of the dogma of organized religion. Mm -hmm. Tough it out, you know? Yeah, the, just... No matter what, no. It's... Weather the storm. Yeah. Sure, patience and commitment is awesome, but at a certain point, mm. some people aren't going to change. You need to pull the parachute. Yeah, the hottest, most er just erotically alive sex. Uh, for I mean, there are plenty of peak experiences in the book Erotic Mind, um, but to really have wild, wonderful sex with a person, often it's just being able to feel intimate and vulnerable with that person is when you can really start doing things you've never done before. Um, it's not about like which crazy hat you're going to wear this time. You know, it's about what can you really say to that person. No. And breakthroughs that you have emotionally, mm. some of the hottest sex follows that of yeah. you know being able to kind of cleanse your your soul and you're mm. saying what you didn't even know you wanted to say for for years, and mm. then it's like then you feel safe and maybe you, that's when you get that yeah you know before the before the orgasm. Yeah. Sandra, thank you so much for uh, coming and, and uh, sharing your knowledge and your personal experiences. Um, I really appreciate it. And I know that there are people um, who have listened to this that will feel less shame about their sexuality, having heard you um, talk so freely and uh, articulately about sexuality. Oh, thank you. It was an incredibly vulnerable uh podcast i feel slightly like i need a hug <laughs> <laughs> you will get one as soon as i turn this okay. off thanks thank you many many thanks to sandra and yes if uh, halfway through that interview you went what you're just now discovering masters of sex 
That episode uh, that that we uh, recorded was recorded in the summer of 2013. Yes. Occasionally, I hang on to episodes for a long time. Um, and she gave us an update, and uh, she said, I've continued to change and evolve and grow, and ups and major downs and ups again. Um, but she's doing great, and I'm hoping to have her uh, back on the podcast to uh, to answer more of your questions. But I really, really enjoyed um, talking to her. She shed a lot of light on uh, topics that uh, some of us either don't know about or, or don't talk about. Um, oh, I want to give some love to one of my favorite sponsors. They've been here since the beginning. I'm talking about Squarespace. Um, if you are looking to build uh, a website, an online portfolio, or you just want to showcase your ideas or have an online store, there really is no better place uh, to do it than, than Squarespace.com. Uh, I decided to give it a, a test run because I thought if I'm going to advertise it, uh, I got to see how it is. And it is fantastic. They have beautiful templates. Um, it looks professional. You don't have to know how to code. They have 24-7 customer support. The list goes on and on. But uh, if you want to check out, I decided to put up some of my favorite uh, pictures of dogs that I've taken and some musical snippets that I've uh, played and written. And so uh, I created a site, paul-gilmartin.squarespace.com. Go check it out and you can uh, see how how cool their stuff is and it took me less than two hours to put all of that stuff together and it's it's very intuitive so i highly highly uh recommend checking it out um so uh if you want to start a, a trial with uh, no credit card uh, required uh, you can start building your website today um when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure that you use the offer code MENTAL and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. And uh, it also shows uh, support for uh, the Mental Illness Happy Hour. But uh, love you guys at Squarespace. You've been supporters of uh, the podcasting medium since the beginning. And uh, we continue to thank you. And you have a great product. All right. I, I think I'm starting to kiss their ass a little bit. I think Squarespace got a little uncomfortable right there. And they were like, uh, all right, back off. Back off. We're not going to abandon you, Paul. This this is a, an email that I got from... Oh, before I get to that, I want to remind you, if you choose to support this show, there are various ways to do it. You can do it financially by going to our website, mentalpod.com, making a one-time PayPal donation, or my favorite, becoming a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. It means a tremendous amount to this podcast because it's how I support myself and keep the podcast running. And uh, I couldn't do it without you guys. And we can always use a bigger budget. We're, uh, there's lots of things I want to do to expand the podcast. And um, it, would, it, would, it would help to get some, uh, some more monthly donors. And uh, God bless the ones who, who are and the ones who make donations. You can also support us. Shop through our Amazon search portal. And if you buy something, Amazon uh, will give us a little bit of money. And it doesn't uh, cost you any more to do it. You can also write something nice about the podcast on iTunes, give us a good rating, and spread the word through social media. All of those things greatly, greatly help and uh, mean the world to me. This is a letter, email, that I got from, uh, let's see, how does he want to be called? Alien Amongst People is how he wants to be referred to. Um, 
I've thought about seeking help for my self-esteem issues, but that's not what I'm emailing you about. I know you aren't a mental health professional, and that's fine, as, I, as I'm just trying to get your opinion on my current situation, if you don't mind. I'm a 37, soon-to-be 38-year-old divorced father of three kids who I love dearly. The oldest of those is a 14, soon-to-be 15-year-old female in high school. I've been divorced for five years now, and since my divorce, I've only been with two women. As I mentioned above, I have some self-esteem issues that causes me to not talk to women. As you can guess, it's been pretty lonely for me these past five years. Well, recently, I took a much-needed self-vacation to see my favorite band, and that trip was life-altering. When I came back home, I actually had some confidence, and it didn't take long for it to show itself. I was visiting a local retail music store and was flirting with a cashier. I could tell she was younger than me, but with women these days, it's hard to really tell how old they are. She was flirting black, flirting, flirting back and blah, blah, blah. To make a long story short, we've been talking and other things since, since then, which is great because she's a great person and makes me happy. The issue is she is 18 and a senior in high school. Not only that, not only that, one of her parents is in law enforcement and the other is a state attorney. The only issue I have with her age is that she is only four years older than my daughter. The high school thing is a little unnerving, but she graduates in a few months. The bigger issue I have is with her parents. What are your thoughts and concerns, if any? And uh, I wrote and uh, wrote him back and I said, I have a few thoughts. Uh one, while technically it's not illegal to have a relationship with her because she's 18, there is a power imbalance, which she is probably not mature enough to fully grasp. Two, the fact that she is still in high school will not sit well with anybody who knows about it, uh, in my opinion. Uh, number three, it will probably freak out and disgust your children, especially the daughter who is also in high school. And if her classmates find out, it could severely affect her relationships uh, with her peers and you. Uh, number four, your involvement with her could damage your reputation in the community if it's something that you care about. Um, Number five, I think therapy might help you find out why you would seek out a relationship with such a power imbalance. I imagine there's probably some issues about unmet, unmet emotional needs from your childhood or adolescence and maybe your relationship with your mom or another powerful female figure, question mark, just a guess. Um, Six, there's nothing wrong about finding a teenager attractive. While most of us would never admit it, we do find them attractive. So this isn't about whether or not you find her attractive. It's about both of your emotional needs. Um, I'm not trying to shame you. Before I began to understand the dynamics and effects of sex between adolescents and adults, I would have viewed, because I do consider an 18-year-old to be an adolescent, I would have viewed this strictly as a legal thing, but I no longer view it uh, that way, especially after talking to many people who were on the less powerful end of the imbalance and people's, people whose parents uh, dated someone near their age. I hope that helps. So, um, thank you for, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, this is an awful moment filled out by, I don't know how you pronounce this, P-I-C-E-A. And, uh, 
She writes, while in college, I had a brief stint with the campus counseling center. After a biology lab, I had an appointment. I was twiddling my thumbs, waiting for my counselor. Next thing I know, my lab instructor walked in and sat down. I'm sure we shared the sentiment of, oh shit, they think I'm crazy now. We were unable to look each other in the face for the rest of the semester. A little reminder that not everybody has it all together. Oh, I totally get that. I'm... Yeah, I don't think it's today. I don't think I would be afraid to um, see, look somebody in the eyes and waiting in the psychiatrist or the therapist's office. But in the past, I used to have a hard time. And I used to always think, oh, they're crazier than I am. Uh, this is struggle in a sentence filled out by Dante, who's a trans male. And he writes... Um, a snapshot from his life, getting dressed, trying on several outfits to try to find the one that will hide my hips. This makes me late every day. I never find anything. I can't imagine how hard that is. Sending you some love, Dante. I had to read this one, if nothing, just for the name. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Manic Sadist Whore. You had me, aff- you had me at Manic. Uh... She is asexual in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, How old is she? In her 30s. uh, Was the victim of sexual abuse but never reported it. Uh, Been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, My dad was the abuser, spanking but full-on spanking hardcore to the point of screaming. I think my dad enjoyed inflicting pain and suffering on me. She had no positive experiences with uh, her father. Darkest thoughts. I have homicidal thoughts. Would love to kill, but not recklessly. I wish we still had public executions for the Ted Bundys out there. I'd bring popcorn. Darkest secrets. Being an evil bitch and anal fisting a male friend on the regular. Well, well, today, not shocking. Ha ha. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Inflicting pain, suffering. I think that says inflicting pain, suffering, no pleasure, no mercy, only fantasy or consensual, just saying. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to that I hate most of humanity? Arg. What do you wish for? A billion dollars. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, and they hate humans too, and we laugh and say, fuck the world. How do you feel after writing these things down? Pretty fucking good. I'm glad you, I'm glad you got that off your chest. It's important. It's important sometimes. In fact, I was just talking with a friend tonight before our uh, support group meeting. The difference between typing your feelings out and writing your feelings out, for some reason, writing it out with a pen is much more personal. And I think because it takes longer, it's we're able to look at our thoughts and our feelings uh, more intimately. And there's also something about seeing your handwriting, seeing that content in your handwriting that especially makes it feel personal and remind you that it's it's about you and it's coming out of your soul. This is uh, an email I got um, from a girl boy, and they write, uh, I'm an avid listener and a trans person, and I must say I cringe sometimes when you read surveys by trans people. You're a heartful dude, and I love listening to you learn 
but uh, pushing convenient narratives can be harmful, e.g. assuming that we have a mismatch between our bodies and souls is not applicable across the board. Making this assumption can place the problem in us rather than in society, uh, i.e. pathologizing us. Um, and uh, I wrote back and uh, thanked them for, for pointing that out. I guess what was po- popping into my mind when I said that in uh, last week's episode was I was... I was I was not including uh, people who are gender fluid, um, and uh, I do appreciate the, what do you want to call it, um, well, gender fluid and, and uh, other non-binary uh, people, but I appreciate the education. I appreciate the education. You guys have been very uh, loving and patient in how you um, have helped educate me. This is an awful moment filled out by Ray, and she writes, I was at a baby shower for a good friend and co-worker. I mentioned to an older co-worker of mine how odd it must feel to be pregnant. She innocently replied to me, well, one day I hope you'll feel what it's like to be alive inside. She was so unaware of how much I wished the same without having to be pregnant. That's pretty heavy. All right, hold on. The music kicked in, muting the music. I always forget to mute the, the music. Um... Boy, I still got a lot of surveys to go, and the music is already kicking in. Um, This is filled out by Charlotte about her depression. She writes, you describe me as upbeat, happy, encouraging, and positive. If only you could see all the energy I put into making myself look this way. About her anxiety, I pack my days full of activities because if there is any free time, I panic. But I pack so much in that it is all unachievable, and when I can't accomplish it all, I panic. I fear every second of every day. About anorexia, I miss you. I miss being sick. I'm a failure without you. Thank you for sharing that, Charlotte. This is filled out by Wixie, and this is a struggle in a sentence. Uh, She writes a snapshot from her life. Uh, And her issues are depression, anxiety, and OCD. She writes, I recently wrote a letter to someone and they died shortly after reading it. I love writing letters to my family, but now I feel like if I write to anyone else, they're going to die too. I have to paint my finger and toenails a certain color, and if I don't, I might die or bad things will happen to me and the people I love, and they actually do happen. I have unlucky nail polish colors, and it sounds so dumb, but I have to follow it or else I will have even worse anxiety about things that I normally have anxiety about. I've had the nail polish problem ever since I can remember. Sending you lots of love, Wixie. That sounds really, really overwhelming, but I hope I hope you go and talk to somebody about it because you don't... You don't have to live that way uh, the rest of your life if you don't want to. This is a happy moment filled out by Misguided, and uh, she writes, I suffer from terrible social anxiety. I often find myself canceling appointments, putting off errands, and having trouble leaving the house in general. While I was leaving the doctor's office today, I overheard the receptionist grumbling about a no-call, no-show appointment earlier that day. That almost would have been me. I dreaded this silly appointment for days and thought about canceling again and again, but I didn't cancel. I pulled myself up by my socially awkward bootstraps and forced myself to go in. It may see trip, may see trip. Slow the fuck down, Paul. Picture Herbert's butthole. Picture Herbert's butthole as the sunset. If that doesn't get you to nirvana. It may seem trivial, but to me, that was a triumph. And I agree. I agree. 
It's all those little triumphs throughout the day that really, it's just stringing them together, man. Uh, Mickey writes about his anxiety, engaging in activities and meaningless tasks that you loathe in order to distract you from the things that you love because the things that make you happy are important. It took me a while to understand what he was saying, but I understand now that it's the things that are important, there's too much pressure to do them. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Mickey. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself MB43. He's bisexual in his 40s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, uh, never been sexually abused. Uh, he's been emotionally abused, no positive experiences with his abusers, darkest thoughts, daily suicide thoughts. I'm bipolar type 2 and have been hospitalized for two months in a psychiatric institution. My shameful thought, seeing my wife screwed by a gang of men. I could never talk about this with her. I can't be that open to anybody. Darkest secrets. Cheated on my wife in all possible ways. Colleagues, strange women in bars, prostitutes, etc. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Gang bangs. I've never done them, but I think about them often. What, if anything, do you wish for uh, to learn to live with my bipolar depression? Have you shared these things with others? No, I'm a very private person. How do you feel after writing these things down? Awkward. Well, buddy, you're, you are not alone in any of the stuff that you described, what you feel, or things that you've done. And like I said to the previous survey, you don't have to keep living that way if you don't want to. Um, it sounds like there might be some sex addiction going on in there. And um, who knows, maybe the bipolar, maybe the mania is uh, is bringing on some of the, the acting out. I don't know. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychiatrist. But uh, I once did cook a souffle um, that had some of the people from laughing <laughs> standing nearby. I don't know. I, I should have prepared that one. What the hell was that? Oh. This is a happy moment filled out by Zenith, and she writes, I always have trouble distinguishing between happy moment or awfulsome moment, but this memory is both. Back in my early 20s, still early in my recovery from a severe eating disorder and new to working full-time and living outside of my parents' house, I was having a very difficult morning. From the moment my eyelids peeled open, all the terrible, putrid thoughts from the ED were ravaging my defenses, and though I had to get to work, I was stuck and melting down. I couldn't get dressed. Anyone with or even in recovery from an ED knows that getting dressed is a time that sets your day up for either feeling okay about your body or self or feeling completely wretched about it. This day was the latter. I was crying, clothes strewn everywhere, and something inside me made me call my mom. Through tears, I managed to say I needed help. Uh, I needed help when asked with what I could say, with what I could only say, I can't get dressed. She was at work but told me, quote, stay right there and came over to my apartment right away. My wonderful mother, who didn't fully understand my disorder yet had fought alongside me for years, put aside her judgment, her criticism, and did what she does best, get stuff done. She helped her adult child find clothes, stop crying, wash the snot and tears off of my face, and get to work. As I was trying to explain my bizarre, crippling thoughts like I can't go out of the house, I can't put other people through the horror of looking at me, she calmly found me what to wear, told me one foot in front of the other, and got me out the door that before that point had been a hundred mile wide moat. 
When I think back on it, I feel so much love for her and actually smile and kind of laugh because the last time my mother had dressed me was back in the the days of horrible 80s plaid jumpers. I don't remember what what does a plaid jumper look like. Um, Somebody's probably going to send me a picture. This is uh, filled out by Nan, who writes about her depression. It feels like I'm in a play, pretending to be someone else, while inside I'm screaming in pain. Boy, do I get that one. Snapshot from her life. I'm sitting with my family. I'm blessed. I'm sitting with my family I am blessed to have, and I just want to flee to a locked room. But even if I do, I'll just be replacing the anxiety and irritability with guilt and self-hatred. That's pretty profound. I think a lot of us relate to that, Nan. A lot of us. Thank you for sharing that. It's like whack-a-mole. Negative negative feeling whack-a-mole. This was filled out by Queen Shit of Liesville. (laughs) I'm a fan. I'm a fan. About her bulimia. At 14, when the doctor told her I was bulimic, she told me I was too fat to have an eating disorder. Wow. That one just deserves a moment of fucking silence. Who who wouldn't have an eating disorder with a parent like that? Oh, my God. Snapshot from her life. The evening around the age of 15, I stabbed a tomato with a knife in frustration and walked towards my bedroom because I could no no longer take my mother's verbal abuse that day. She chased me down, straddled and strangled me, and accused me of wanting to, in fact, stab her. Wow, she is a sick, sick woman, your mom. Well, at least... uh, this woman is is 35 and uh and she's seeing a therapist so at least you're getting better at least you're getting better but oh sorry you had to experience that god that's terrible this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself shortstop she's gay she's in her uh she's 20 years old she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment she's never been sexually abused not sure if she's been physically or emotionally um She writes, my sisters and I have been slowly coming to the realization that our mother was emotionally abusive, although we are very weary of using that term because we aren't completely sure. She was a pro at pitting. Yes, by the way, just listen. Listen to the laundry list of things that she's not sure about. She was a pro at pitting us against each other to the point where it has only been in the past two years or so that we've become close. It was a never-ending competition to get her approval, something I have recently realized I never wanted but fought for anyway because she made all of us desperate for validation and approval. She is inherently a selfish person who only thinks of herself. I'm away at college now, and this freedom has allowed me to see how toxic our relationship is, but the ramifications of her, quote, parenting style haven't gone away. I don't want to blame her for the way I am, but it's hard not to. I can't help but imagine what kind of person I would be if I didn't spend my entire childhood being ridiculed, called a burden, 
and constantly having my emotions toyed with for her enjoyment. I don't speak to her often, but when I do, she has no problem complaining about how expensive my tuition is and how we are going poor because of me. A fact that my father, the actual breadwinner of the family, vehemently disputes. Of course, she acts like a caring mother in front of her friends, always posting about how proud she is of me when I'm placed on the dean's list or when my team does well at a tournament. I just feel like a pawn in her game. And you're not sure if that's emotional abuse. The the lengths we will go to to avoid seeing our parents in a in a real light is is amazing. It is amazing. And I'm sure your mom is probably just putting the same shit on you that her mom or dad put on her. But um, anyway, I'll continue before I get on my soapbox. Uh, Any positive experiences? I'm at a weird crossroad where I don't want to say I was abused because part of me argues that either A, it didn't actually happen and I'm just too sensitive, one of her favorite lines. By the way, that in, that in and of itself, telling your child they're too sensitive, that's that's abusive. Uh, B, it wasn't that bad. Or C, I deserved whatever happened to me because I really am as worthless as she makes me feel. Depends on what kind of mood I'm in that day. This is complicated more by the fact that we've always been decently well off. That has nothing to do with it. How well off you are has nothing to do with emotional abuse. Uh, continuing, I feel guilty for complaining about, quote, petty things like my mental health when I've been given so many material things and opportunities, which makes me feel even guiltier for feeling guilty ad infinitum. That is because our culture worships materialism instead of emotional health. That is the cult. That is the cult. And that is why we are so fucked up, confused, empty, and angry. And I just really, really hope that you can start to set boundaries. And when your mom says something like, you know, we're going poor because of your expensive education, you could say something like, well, then maybe you should have thought twice before you had kids. Probably not the healthiest thing to say, but that's what I want to fucking say to her right now. Darkest thoughts. I'm severely depressed and suicidal, but I joke about my mental issues sarcastically with so many people that they think I just have a dark sense of humor. I'm a junior in college with no plans for the future because I truly believe the future does not exist for me, which of course makes me feel guilty for making my parents pay for my education if I'm just going to blow my brains out before I turn 25. My father is the exact opposite of my mother, and I hope that they divorce so he can be happy. And I hope that you can separate yourself from your mom so you can be happy. Um, yeah. Darkest secrets. Probably the whole I think about killing myself every day thing. Sexual fantasies. Uh, I'm uncomfortable with sex because I can't imagine anyone ever being interested in me. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I have such a hard time expressing my emotions, and I feel embarrassed when I do, but I would like to be able to tell people how much I admire them for the little things they think other people never notice. God, you are such a beautifully sensitive soul, and it kills me to see that that vulnerability disgusts your mom, that it threatens her, and she pounces on you. But what what she mocks you for is fucking beautiful. It's beautiful. You're sensitive. People like you can make the world a better place. 
you you have the potential to stop the cycle of this, and I really think you can. You know, I I I, I hope you hang in there, because um, I think every person that is hearing me read this survey, shortstop, just wants to give you the biggest warmest hug and say fucking hang in there fucking hang in there ah you're making me you're making me get choked up how dare you take away my feeling of being dead inside this is a letter uh why do i always say letter god go sit in a rocking chair old man this is an email i got uh maybe because i print them out and maybe I'm being a little too fucking hard on myself, huh? Now I'm being hard on myself about being too hard on myself. That's pretty meta. Uh, John writes, your story about chasing... No, I'm sorry. I often hear the idea of letting go, not holding anger, sadness, regret, etc. I don't understand how that's done. I've tried to, quote, let go. I'd rather not feel those things. Often a picture, a word, a sound can bring those emotions back so fast. I can't stop the reflective emotion. It's just on top of me. What's the secret? Kidding. I know you don't know either. Um, well, I, I don't believe there's any secret, but for me, what helps me when I start to get emotionally triggered is is to think what fear is at play right here. And, you know, especially if I'm angry, I always know that there's fear underneath it. And then I take the, the fear apart. I'll say, okay, maybe I'm, uh, I'm afraid that uh, these friends of mine aren't going to love me. And I think it through. I say, okay, well, if, if they're going to abandon me because I failed at such and such, they weren't my friends to begin with. Or let's say I'm panicking because I'm late uh, getting someplace and I'll start beating myself up and catastrophizing about what happens if I get there late. And I think you've been late before. You didn't have any control over traffic. In other words, I I think it through. But to get to that point, I had to do a lot, do a lot of intensive soul searching around people I was resentful at. And th- this was stuff I did in my support groups listing people I was resentful at, the fears that it brought up, um, my part in it, um, uh, character flaws that I had um, based on my actions. And once you become aware of those things, it becomes much easier to give people a wide berth because you're aware of how flawed you are. Not in a beat yourself up kind of way, but in a we're all in this together, we're all trying our best, and we're we're all flawed. So that helps me to let things go. You know, for instance, today, actually the last two days, when I've been driving, I've had that thing where somebody pulls out of a side street on your right-hand side, and let's say you're going 40 miles an hour, and they pull right out in front of you, and you almost have to slam your brakes on to not hit them in the, in the back, and I've not been reacting to them. I've not flashed my brights. I've not laid on my horn. I've not pulled around them and given them a look to let them know that they're, you know, whatever. And and I've just sat with that feeling and I was able to let it go because I thought about the times I've pulled in front of other people. Um, I thought about how many times I've been afraid and done something s- silly or selfish. And this person isn't doing it to me personally. So 
How's that for a long answer? But that's, I can't usually just let it go. There has to be, there has to be some momentum behind it. I have to be, um, you know, as we like to say in recovery, keeping my side of the street clean by trying to be of service, trying to be honest, compassionate, uh, considerate. And when I'm in that kind of good place where I'm doing that, my self-esteem is good, then I can let things go. But it's it's hard. And if you can't let it go, just fucking punch them. This is filled out by Bioluminescent. I like the name. Fancy. Fancy. I think you're writing this from a throne. And uh, she writes, uh, she has, uh, suffers from depression, ADD, anxiety, and compulsive eating, and a snapshot from her life. I got into my sister's car, and because of my size, my hip accidentally pushed against the gear shift, gear shift and caused her car to stall. Uh, she looked at me with such consternation that said, how could you possibly be this fat? Later on, I found out I have a hormonal disorder plus compulsive eating, because I'm lucky, but that look on her face stays with me. I'm terrified of traveling, especially flying, in case I become one of those fat people they are kicked off. With other addictions, you can hide the bottles or the needles. With eating, you are the disorder. It's in your body, and everyone can see it. Every day is a string of small but constant humiliations. I can't imagine. I can't imagine how... How difficult um, any type of uh, eating issue has has got to be. Yeah, sending you some love. Uh, Sadie writes about her anorexia. It's not a body image thing. It's more of a this food is rotten problem. I think most food is spoiled if it gets in my head. It's gross, tainted, or spoiled. I can't eat. Uh, yeah, I think I read that right. This is a happy moment filled out by Little Dragon. Um, and they write, a Little Dragon is gender fluid. And they write, I met up with a friend today who I hadn't seen in months. We talked about our mental health. I told her about having to drop out of college due to my crippling depression and how I can hardly seem to get out of bed anymore. She told me about her bipolar disorder and how she was worried about not being connected enough with her three-year-old daughter. She worries that her disorder is going to screw up her daughter's life just like her mom did to her. It was a really healing kind of chat, and she cried when she told me that he, she hasn't been able to talk about this stuff with anyone else because they call her crazy. It made my heart hurt to see that she felt as alone as I did, but made me glad to know that she and I at least have each other. We both agreed to start going back to therapy together and support each other through these rough times. It was truly a happy moment. Oh. So beautiful. Man, that is, just love it. Just love it. Thank you for sharing that. Um, this is a teenager uh, who calls herself um, M-I-S-S-N-E. I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, about her depression. Am I a lazy piece of shit using my depression as an excuse or so sick I'm fucking up my life and don't have the energy to do anything about it? Uh, congratulations. I'm getting inside my mind and uh, condensing everything into a single sentence about being a sex crime victim. Not being able to check if there are pictures of your 13-year-old self on child pornography sites. 
because you know the law, question mark. Jesus, that is heavy. About experiencing sexual bias, I am filled with rage and anxiety every time a man I don't know follows or contacts me on social media, like when are you going to ask for pictures of my cunt? Uh, sending you some love. Sending you some love. This is an email I got from Kelvin, and he writes, My name is Kelvin from USA. I have a business proposal for you. Um, Kelvin, I'm so glad that you reached out to me, and um, I am also from USA. And I hope, if you're listening, that there's a way that we can meet, because you sound like... Um, you sound like you got you got it together, and the fact that you were able to figure out email and uh, and contact me uh, tells me that that you're a go getter. And um, I know there's a lot of other people in USA that you could have contacted, but I was the one in USA that you decided to contact, and I thank you for that. This uh, was filled out by Tornado of Contradictions, who writes, um, she writes about a snapshot from her life. Her issues are anxiety and anger. And she writes, I love my mother. My mother is driving me insane. (laughs) That is a t-shirt. I love my mother. My mother is driving me insane. It should say, I love my mother on the front. And then my mother is driving me insane on the back. Sarah writes about her depression, like I have all the tastiest foods in front of me, but no taste buds. Boy, is that a good one. About her ADD, it's like thousands and thousands of thoughts and dreams and responsibility all being in the number one spot on your must-do priority list. Yes. Yes. About experiencing uh, racial bias, she writes, so jealous of the biggest white person privilege, which is to be treated as a fucking individual. About being an abuser, she writes, I was verbally abused and had no idea. So all this fun-loving sarcasm, I thought, uh, I was also raising my children with is actually damaging verbal abuse. Well, thank God you, you, you figured it out. And it's never too late. It is never too late. Um, snapshot from her life, I am half black and half white. I grew up with my mother and half-brother whom are white. I grew up in an all-white neighborhood with all-white everything. People looked at me differently and treated me differently. Never once did I think it had to do with race. I always thought there was something wrong with me, something I wasn't doing. It was never explained, the racism in the world, and grew up thinking we were all in this together. In my 20s, I started to realize that some people were just out for themselves. And then in my 30s, when Trayvon Martin was shot, by some stranger and no one cared. Uh, Even though the town where I grew up in, we grew up walking around the streets at night, hoods up, and if a stranger ever approached us, there was no way we would stop and talk to him. We would run. But no one I knew, not my mother, not my friends, no one was upset. Not like I was upset. And now a horrible reality and depression have set in. I'm a brown girl who thought she built a beautiful support system with people who truly cared for her, but slowly realizing I built a support system on white people who care for white issues, not human issues. That is so unsettling. It has to be. It has to be. And I, I don't know what's that, what that is like, but thank you for sharing that with us. My hope is, is that We're moving in the right direction, though. That's my hope. Uh, This is a happy moment filled out by Stray Dreamer. 
and uh, she's 17, and she writes, I was spending my day seeing other people displaying love and affection towards each other all around me while I sat in the sidelines not expecting anything. I then went home to my younger sister, waking up to hear the first thing she says, hug me, and she lifted both her arms, making a place for me to snuggle into. It sounds so simple, but I honestly felt such a warm feeling of love in a place that felt so empty before. My Easter wouldn't have been the same without that small and random act of love. And to me, that's what's so that's what's so cool about vulnerability. If your sister hadn't displayed that vulnerability, you probably wouldn't have had that moment. And if you wouldn't have displayed it back by meeting her with the same energy. Um, This is a happy moment filled out by Tristis. And uh, I'm just going to kind of fast forward uh, to her uh, in her happy moment. Uh, Lots of terrible shit in her uh, childhood. Dad died when she was young. uh, Single mom raised her with zero money. Um, Lots of tragedies. And... uh, she writes, uh, even though uh, there were days every year, even through all that, there were days every year where she'd skip work and let us sleep in to have off school for a fun day. We'd go to the park, have ice cream, and I couldn't have had more fun. Mom was the best. She always paid attention to the free days for the Chicago museums, and we'd go to the Shedd Aquarium or the Field Museum, as well as the free zoo in Madison every year. That was the best vacation ever. It was a break where we got to feel like other families and have some fun. I will always respect my mom for all she sacrificed for me. That's so awesome. And it just, you know, hits home that that truth that people's favorite memories from childhood with their parents is never about something they bought them. It's about them being seen and felt and their needs being being met. Uh, and finally, we have an awfulsome moment by Sadie. And she writes, I watch a lot of crude crime documentaries when I'm sad. I was watching one the other day about a serial killer that mainly killed crack whores. It was really sad but interesting. As I was watching the documentary, they kept interviewing this one crack whore. I kept getting this weird feeling she reminded me of someone. Then she said something and it hit me. That was something my mom would say. She reminded me of my mom and I started to cry. That was one of the only times I've become overwhelmed with the feeling of missing my dead mother who was a crack whore. I struggled with not really being sad when she died and feeling guilty about it. It felt good to genuinely have an I miss my mom moment. Later, I was telling my cousin and we couldn't stop laughing at the fact that what really made me miss my mom is listening to a crack whore talking shit on TV. I wasn't going to put this one last, but how do you not end with that? How do you not... (laughs) Nothing more needs to be said. You're not alone. Thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.